spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge seekers. Hey, what's up everyone? This week on the Ascend Podcast, we're joined by Andrew Johnson. And if you don't know who Andrew is, he's an alternative researcher and author of the book, The Secrets Within the Solar System. And this was such a great conversation. And Andrew actually as well kindly invited me and Chris to his home in Derby in the UK. And in this podcast, we went right down the rabbit hole of this one. We explored and dug into some of the areas that Andrew explores in his new book, Secrets Within the Solar System. And this was such a great talking point as we just love talking about space, NASA, planets, UFOs, and many more mysteries within the universe as well. And I was actually watching a talk the other day on YouTube where there was this debate going on between a mainstream physicist and an alternative physicist and they were arguing about the moon landing and, that's, and it's a really good talking point, the moon landing anyway in general. But anyway, the best argument that the mainstream scientists kept saying and clinging on to all the time was the word NASA. And what I mean by that is he kept saying to the alternative physicist, what, you're going to go against NASA? A, a real f- official government body? But as we know and you get as you know and you go deeper down the rabbit hole you start to understand that the word nasa on a fundamental level all it is is just a word <laughs> but anyway there was a time in my life where i hung on every word that government officials or even nasa said and i'm not saying that everything that comes out from nasa or whoever is a conspiracy but in life when you think about it we just trust a narrative and we put so much trust in the government or NASA that will make us aware of any important happenings that's going on in the world. But if we do just look back at most narratives we've been taught throughout our school, schooling time, our history or whatever it is, if we look back on that we realise how many things were wrong. So anyway all I'm trying to say is that you have to be critical and open-minded at the same time but within the, the conversation of space, in the solar system, UFOs, whatever it is, there are so many questions and narratives in that conversation that's up for grabs and there's a lot of things that is yet to be found 100% true and a lot of things as well that has been presented that just just doesn't add up when you start peeling away the onion so anyway in this one we definitely start peeling away the layers of that onion and explore many topics and questions and just to name a few we asked the question is is it the case that we've only found mostly un- uninteresting collections of gas rocks and ice dust within the solar system are some scientists deliberately ignoring or lying about certain data we talk about and discuss the evidence of past or present life within the solar system and has it ever been discovered what would happen if nasa had discovered compelling evidence of past or present extraterrestrial life in the solar system would they even tell us the truth we talked about the ufo phenomenon the face in the pyramid on mars pyramids in antarctica planet x and that's just to name a few so much more and i just also want to say in about the one hour 50 mark in this podcast the sound does go a tiny bit funny for about only for two only for two minutes 
as this podcast was actually recorded on the old recording setup as the previous recording system that we had was having loads of problems but we won't be having that problem in the future now because we've invested in a complete 100% brand new recording device which is really good and we won't have this problem in the past so i just want to give you that heads up in case you thought what the hell's going on are the government tuning in and trying to mess this up <laughs> but anyway i also just want to see it as well if you want to watch the video form of this podcast that is available on the ascend podcast youtube page and every podcast from now on like we said are all in person and they're all available on that youtube page in the video form as well if you want to get your view viewing on <laughs> so anyway just want to as well show some love to our page on page we're now at a very pivotal point within this podcast we really need your help so please consider supporting the podcast for our patreon page and becoming a patron and all you need to do is decide a certain amount each month that you want to donate to the podcast and become a patron and this really is the best way to support the podcast this podcast as you know is a hundred percent advertisement free we're not like all the other podcasts who are promoting products that deep down don't serve anyone. All we ask is if you consider donating a small amount each month, even the price of a cup of coffee each month. This is all we're asking. Is this podcast worth paying the price of a cup of coffee each month? Ask yourself that. And please consider any way of supporting the podcast. It really would mean a lot to us. So anyway, I know you're going to love this podcast. It's a powerhouse of a one with Andrew Johnson. Enjoy. Right, so where to start this? <laughs> where to dive deep? Um... So anyway, um, thanks thanks so much for doing this as well. It's really cool. And invite us to your house as well. It's really cool. I really do appreciate it, don't we? Oh, thanks no, for coming. Thanks that. for taking yeah. the time and the trouble yourselves, yeah. And um, so when I first came across your work, something that really fascinated me was um, so many different topics. Obviously, you're covering so, like a spam of so many different topics, which obviously in the future we're definitely going to have to talk about. But like I said before, um, you, one topic that really fascinated was was your book. Um, what's, what's the title of your book called again? The, the, the latest one that I did was called Secrets in the Solar System, yeah, Gatekeepers on Earth. Right. Yeah, I think that's such a. It was a, such. I actually, I didn't read the full book, but I sort of, um, in preparation of this podcast, I sort of skimmed through a couple of stuff and watched a couple of your lectures and things like that. I mean, but have you always been someone who's been fascinated by space and the universe and things like that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think I can't remember how much I put in the book, but um, you know, I think it was my elder brother who's seven years older than me. He had a telescope, which I think we got it from. Uh, I don't know where we got this telescope, maybe secondhand from somebody. And um, we used to look at the moon and Saturn, and I was probably about eight, nine, ten years old, and it had a wobbly wooden tripod, you know, and uh, I think it was 60 times magnification. Yeah. A little thing you pull out and a focusing knob. And it was a very basic telescope, you know, and by an astronomer standard, very poor quality, really. But it was good enough to spark my interest. And uh, I was given astronomy books for Christmas, uh, one or two. So I knew all the names of the planets. I knew where they were in relation to the Earth. Oh. Probably I knew all that stuff by about the age of, um, you know, sort of 10, 11, 12, that sort of age. And, of course, um, you know, I was born in 64. 
So uh, when this alleged moon landing took place, uh, I was I was four years old, and that of course was going th- on through my early life. So the Apollo space program was going on, uh, you know, through my early childhood. Oh, wow. um, and so, like many of my age, um, that's it was logical to be interested in space. You saw in astronomy, you saw quite a lot of it on TV yeah, yeah. on the news. Then you know the Apollo missions, as I say, and other things like the Apollo Soyuz link up. Which I think was uh, 1974, where the Americans and the Russians uh, did this link up in orbit. So, how could you not be interested in that? You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you seem like you said before in the past. You said you used to when you were younger. You were more immersed in it. I mean, are you seeing? Are you seeing that now? Because for me, anyway, um, I've, what I've noticed a lot of my close friends and people like that, there seems mm. to be this resurgence in people wanting to understand more scientific principles about the universe and things like that. I mm-hmm. mean, are you? Is, 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 have you noticed any a difference between the past and now? I mean, are we seeing more now? Would you, would you say? Um, well, I, in my personal uh, interactions, it's been much more difficult, as I was, you know, saying too early on, because I, I tend to be quite honest about going to detail. I tend to live in a bit of a bubble here where I am now, because I've been a lone worker for a number of years, yeah. um, and so I, I can't really answer that side of the question, um, but. I've seen, you know, I, I've seen certainly in the mainstream, and and perhaps as you've read through some of the book, there has actually been a, to me a dilution of a lot of the uh, way that space research or whatever you want to call it, astronomy, is presented to the public. Oh, and I, you know, anybody could, for example, go and watch. I just came to my mind. It's quite an interesting video by uh, by uh, with uh, Patrick Moore who was a very famous uh, UK astronomer, very well regarded. He did a lot of research uh, into mapping the moon in the in the 50s and 60s, and he actually gave some of his maps to NASA because, you know, he was so dedicated do- to doing this. And he's mentioned in at least one NASA report, which I mentioned in the book. But, for example, he did a video for the BBC, for the Sky, I think for the Sky at Night programme, which was his monthly astronomy programme, and he went on a ship to watch the uh, solar eclipse, um, which I think was off the coast of Africa. I think it was 1973. And if you watch that video, which somebody has posted on YouTube, and look at because there's loads of people, you know, there's about 100 people on this ship, and they're building their own telescopes, they're building their own mounts because they're on this ship, they want to photograph the eclipse so the ship's going to be you know rocking so they've developed their own little mechanisms for steadying the telescopes and one guy's lying on his back with some binoculars and looking up at the (laughs) thing you know with a filter and da 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 and you you see you just don't really see that type of thing on television now Mm. Or, or if you do it might be tucked away on one of these specialist satellite channels you know because of course now on on tv we have channels which are more focused on particular interests you know like drama movie channel uh, sports channel you know science channel discovery yeah. channel so if you don't happen to watch those channels you're not gonna find out about those things mm. so there's there's definitely an aspect of that i think these days where i think people um don't get exposed to astronomy topics as much as they once did but then yeah. again having said that the groups of astronomers that want to get together now can do it much more easily. You know, they've got their own internet forums, their own Facebook groups, uh, you know, Twitter, and whatnot. Um, so, so there are those venues too. But what I did, um, you know, 
I think what really changed my view about space and astronomy research, um, as I say in the book and in many interviews that I've done, was when I started to discover more about the UFO issue, you know, the, mm. the, the UFO aliens, ET issue, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. And it's one that most astronomers really do not like talking yeah. about. You know, they, they want to put it on one side and they, you know, you get people like, and I write about Brian Cox in the book, you know, he's this famous UK astronomer he's on, on on television. I mean, he's now, you know, put forward as a science specialist, you yeah. know. Mm. Um, but, you know, they, they, he, he will say, oh yeah, well there might be aliens, mm -hmm. there might be life in the universe, but we haven't really, you know, we haven't really yeah. discovered any evidence for it. And my, I think one of the book, things that you'll find in this book, if people want to read it, uh, Secrets in the Solar System, it's a free download in PDF form, um, or you can get it in paperback, or you can get it on your Kindle for, you know, um, the Kindle one's a bit obviously cheaper than the paperback. But the PDF is free, so anyone can get this for free if they want to. Uh, That's what to, I had to look through, actually. Yeah. Really, really good, yeah. really good. Thank you. And so the difference with this is what I'm trying to show people is that the, the, the agencies, primarily NASA uh, and ESA, the European Space Agency, and, you know, you could bring in a couple of others, like the, there's even an Indian Space Agency for the people that didn't know that. Yeah. Um, in other words, one of their functions is, according to them, to look out into the cosmos and find evidence for extraterrestrial life. Yeah. Mm. So... Uh, what I show you in the book, and I'm obviously I'm not the first to do this, but I think I've I've tried to put something of a different emphasis on this than other people have, is have they got any evidence from any of the space missions uh, that they found extraterrestrial mm -hmm. life, or that would indicate some extraterrestrial life somewhere doing something? Yeah. Mm. You know, in our own solar system, and it's really trying to break that question down and give people what I think is the best evidence that. Basically, my answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is evidence in our solar yeah. system of extraterrestrial life. Yeah. yeah. And, and and NASA and ESA have really essentially, you know, at best tried to downplay that and at worst deliberately are covering it up, you know, knowingly covering it up. Mm. Um, so that is really what, what that book is about. So, so, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, one of my favourite quotes actually is... Um, there are two possibilities in, in the universe. Either we're alone or there is um, life out oh, there. And both are equally frightening. Yeah. And I love that concept. I think that's from Arthur C. Clarke. I think if I recall rightly, it, uh, yeah, it's Arthur C. Clarke's quote. Yeah, and it is an interesting quote. And, you know, to me, it's I've always been quite passionate about this question because when you think um, about... You know our own existence and everything on planet Earth. Yeah, we only have one way of looking at it, and we have what you know. We're not only I'm being over simplistic to make a point, but if you've got some group or some beings that come from another planet, another star system, who are totally different to us, they will have a totally different take on the universe as a whole. Totally different technology, different language, yeah, mm. you know, different philosophy, all of that. And all of these problems that, that we have may be sort of literally fall away if yeah. we, 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 have, we can interact with this other intelligence somehow 
and they they sort of have a different way of looking at things you know and and to me that is strongly indicated by what you see in people's um experiences of you know things like flying saucers yeah and you're basically left with a simple question um you know with a flying saucer encounter did it happen or didn't it happen if i'd been in that place where that person saw that thing or that thing landed and that being got out and talked to them would my experience have been the same as that person's are they accurate accurately reporting what yeah. happened to yeah. them you know and um you know when you start to consider that question deeply it changes how you how you think about the whole your whole approach to life and how you know how you, you actually solve problems what problems are really problems and, and things like that that's the kind of thing what what why i'm so passionate about it and that is just completely shrugged off by the mainstream yeah. scientific establishment they they will just say well you know by and large obviously not everyone does that but the, the majority do that mm. um and it's just completely shrugged off so you so if you in other words if you see uh, a, a rare sort of automobile going down the street that's you know you, you've never normally seen you report that in you know a blog or something mm-hmm. oh you, you know you say oh you you saw that fantastic car that's yeah. from, you know built so and so and there's only 10 of them made or something wow wow you know, but no, nobody will question the fact that you actually saw it. Mm. Or if you post a picture of you, you, you or a video of you seeing this rare car or whatever it is, or plane or you know creature. Um, I think they fundamentally hold the idea of truth. I mean, as soon as they see something and they perceive it as truth, they want to hold on to that truth because it's their concrete truth, mm. and they don't want to like have anything that will suggest otherwise. I mean, the same thing with to me would be the moon landing, especially because mm-hmm. I was there. I watched it on TV. They hold that as their identity, yes. and they don't want to have anything which will destruct that, to um, like lower the the magnitude of that how big that event was. They want to like, they want to live up to that expectation, like the GFK. We went to the moon. We're going to do it, and they felt that whole passion. That era was spawned through the whole identity of the space race. I mean, we pushed human limita- limitations to the max, and right at that moment humanity was like all one about how great we all were and about human potential was I mean it kind of felt like we've reached that pinnacle there and it feels like is that going down now oh it is I mean and and this is something you know we'll talk about in a minute but just just to sort of tack on to what you were saying and what I I was saying as well is that you know you an ordinary person can put out say a, a video of what they say is a flying saucer ufo or whatever and you know huge huge questions will be asked but if something like nasa puts out a video saying oh there is no face on mars they won't be questioned about that yeah. mm. people will just accept that presumably because you know so much money has been spent on you know this this pr- space probe or whatever it is so we as ordinary people often um, are not believed um for the same reasons apparently that people like NASA are believed yeah. and even when you can show and prove that NASA have lied people still don't you know yeah. don't have the same um, open mindedness that they, they're they being lied to you know like you're saying so building up about the Apollo missions um, and you made a very good point there and that's that's something which I really only started to think about um, after I re- came to realize that they they can't have landed on the moon yeah with the stated technology and that again to 
pause on that for a second is slightly different to saying that the Apollo astronauts never went to the moon. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Apollo astronauts went to the moon. But as some people say, well, they may have been to the moon, but they, they didn't go in an Apollo uh, Saturn V rocket. We, we were just talking about this before on the way down mm-hmm. the car. About, um, yeah. I mean, there's so much here when you said so many stuff on it. You touched on Mars there. I want to go to Mars. The, yeah, the fierce yeah. on Mars yeah, as well. Yeah. But um, when you were talking about the moon landing there, um, we were having a <coughs> funny discussion in the car on the way down. And we're talking about, because I'm not sure, you probably are familiar with this, but the, some of the footage, the original footage, I think the data has actually gone missing. So we were saying, mm-hmm. imagine if, um, so it's like, you know, like in the past, how we used to have VHR tapes and stuff of Christmas dinner and you have your uh, Christmas parties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they're all in a room one day, just like this we are now. And you you going through your house and you're clearing out all your different uh, all the different tapes and like clearing out your house and stuff. And you go through all the tapes and one says, "Oh, this is Johnny when he had his Christmas party." Oh, we'll keep that one. That's a great tape, right? Don't don't copy over that one, right? Here's another tape. Oh, this is uh, Johnny having a wee beside the tree. Oh, we'll keep that one. That's a great conversation <laughs> as well. And then comes up and every, everyone in the family's looking and it says moon landing the greatest thing ever happened in human history mm-hmm. oh, i'll tell you what what we'll do is we'll um we'll record over that tape because supposedly <laughs> the what nasa mm-hmm. came out and said was that originally that when they had the data and things like that there was a shortage of these tapes mm-hmm. at the time and so they decided that to, to because they were short of storage they had to use the same tape but i mean how funny is that i mean would you record over the, supposedly the greatest thing ever known to man I mean, there's various <laughs> stories like that that yeah that they've recorded over some of the tapes. Yeah, it's funny. And uh, yeah, and they've lost a lot of the pictures. The original pictures have allegedly been you know gone missing and stuff. There's various stories that have come out over the years, and you know it's a it's a little bit like the story um, that came out when they were making the BBC documentary about nine eleven. And we had that uh, story of Jane Stanley, who was the lady that was saying, oh, Building 7 has been destroyed, has, has collapsed, and it was behind her in the picture. You yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, and then, and then they said, the BBC said, oh, we've lost the tapes for that particular thing, so we can't yeah. verify it, which was a bit silly because it was on YouTube by then anyway, you know, yeah. multiple copies. Same with the Apollo, uh, you know, videos that a lot of them have been put onto YouTube. There's been various sort of uh, home video packages made of the original Apollo films anyway. You know, sort of made in the 80s and 90s and released on VHS. You know, like Apollo Man's Greatest Achievement, all that sort of those sorts of videos. You know, mm. um, but they, I think they were saying they'd lost some of the original. You know the original uh, uh, footage, like you were saying. So that raises certain questions, as you say, is why would that be? But I think some of that then becomes an Easter egg hunt. In other words, people have put onto oh, why have they lost the tapes? That proves there's a conspiracy. But so what is the conspiracy? What is it that they're covering up? Um, so in other words, saying that they've lost the tapes doesn't immediately give you an answer as to whether they landed on the moon or not. That's that's. You know, that's the basic question. Did they land on the moon or did they not? Now, the, the Secrets in the Solar System book isn't really about that because it's going to be the subject of the next book, actually, yeah, yeah. Or, or it's going to be in the next book. Um, but I do put a chapter in because uh, the reason why I've put a chapter about the Apollo hoax in the Secrets in the Solar System book, or a part of a chapter, I think I've put it, put it in, is because a lot of people talk about uh, anomalies on the moon, you know, alleged alien bases or structures or whatever, which have come from Apollo images. And I basically says, well, I'm not going to talk about those because I'm sure, as far as sure as I can be, that they did not land on the moon in Apollo. So I'm basically going to mm. ignore the Apollo 
photographs that, that show these alleged so, so anomalies. Know, so you know, with the old story in the past and the stuff, the way they said that we actually did get there. I mean, I mean, obviously you've analysed and looked at that, but why would? Because there's obviously a lot of people who's on both sides of the fence. People are going to be listening. They're saying, "Oh, yes, we certainly did." Like Chris mm-hmm. said, people are so like ideologised in a, in the thing mm-hmm. itself. Yes. I like, believe the wind. But I mean, to, to your knowledge, I mean, why do you think? Like on a sort of more scientific level, why do you think that it was impossible at that time? Well, basically, it, um, there are a number of areas which become very problematic. Like, for example, if you, uh, and the best answer I can give you to that is for those that are listening is to read Ralph Renee's book, which is called NASA Mooned America. Now, Ralph Renee, he had an IQ of like 130 or something, and he actually uh, patented certain inventions some of which were mentioned in NASA reports relating to, you know, setting up the Apollo mm-hmm. missions. Mm-hmm. So Ralph Renee was, you know, um, uh, a recognised kind of uh, guy who was a, um, I think he was an engineer of some kind. Of, I don't know exactly what, exactly what his background is, but he did have an engineering bent about him. Mm-hmm. And he, for example, built um, a, a, a replica of the glove of the Apollo spacesuit and tried to get it to function in the back. In a, in a vacuum and he describes this in his book and just to you can read that about that and how the gloves didn't really seem to be that great so how could they handle things when they're on the moon uh, yeah. the other thing is he said how did they navigate if you look at actually pointing a spacecraft at the moon keeping it on track for four days you've got to be bang on uh, how did they navigate and the, the, the stories that NASA gives about the navigation are quite vague like you know um did they navigate using the stars? Or what sort of sextant did they use? You know, And then they'll claim that they navigated by radar. But when you look at navigating by radar for that distance, 280-odd thousand miles, it's very tricky. It can't even very be tricky to, be, to be accurate enough to land in that place. And there's a number of obvious questions which arise, like you, everyone's, I think most people who have looked at this and have looked at this topic and thought about it would have seen the simulation of the the lunar module yeah. which was flown by neil armstrong neil armstrong which crashed on its first flight and he ejected on earth <laughs> yet that i think was the only test that were live test where fuel was in it and it was flown on earth i think that was the only test maybe there were one or two others but there certainly weren't many mm. and they they did have some mock-up rig as well where i think they had something attached to cables and there was some mock-up rig which i remember coming across uh, and they drop this thing down and put various stresses on it or something. Um, that that was done, I think, as well. But according to NASA, uh, the lunar module worked perfectly six times in a row with no malfunctions at all. Wow. You know? I mean, Russia themselves, at the same time, that they asked um, the Russian scientists, why, can't, why haven't we got to the, uh, to the moon? Hmm? And said, we couldn't figure out how to do it. We just couldn't work it out. I, I haven't heard that uh, quote, but it would not surprise me. But, the, the, you know, then the, a lot of people will argue, and I hear this rep- argument repeatedly, uh, that the Russians, you know, um, would have blown the whistle on the Americans if, you know, they'd, they'd had evidence of a hoax. Mm-hmm. So you're assuming that because the Russians didn't have evidence of a hoax, uh, they couldn't blow the whistle, and therefore the, the Americans went. It's probably the next best thing what they could do, isn't it? Well, well, the problem that with that is that there actually is a problem with some of the Russian missions too, or one in particular which I can mention, which was illustrated to me in David Percy's film, uh, which is What Happened on the Moon. It's another good film to watch for people that are interested in this topic. David Percy's and Mary Bennett's What Happened on the Moon. It's available on 
aulis.com which is a-u-l-i-s.com go to that website go to the video link watch what happened on the moon it's about three hours in total um, and in, within that you'll see ten minutes on Yuri Gagarin's launch mm-hmm. of course Yuri Gagarin first man in the moon wasn't he uh, uh, first, 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 first man in space allegedly um, but I remember seeing a BBC Horizon documentary in 1999 which for the first time revealed that Gagarin didn't land in his capsule he oh, actually wow. jumped out halfway you know, oh. to the ground and the capsule when it landed on the ground was empty according to that documentary and uh, and then if you watch David the David Percy film they talk about more evidence which is that Gagarin was taken out of the capsule before it went up and they also talk about the story being announced twice in Russia once on the 12th of April and it was also and it was announced live mm. both days this live event happened twice on consecutive days yeah. according to what they show in this film it's, or something like that maybe there's a break of two days I can't remember the exact dates but if you watch David Percy and Mary Bennett's film you will see there is a, a good reason to suspect that the, the, the story of Yuri Gagarin is, is, is not true um, they do say that somebody went up into space but because of the timing and because of the in other words, a bit like the Apollo 11 mission number 11 there you go um, they needed that mission to be a success for, at that time for whatever reason. The same with Gagarin. They needed that mission to be a success, mm. whatever, you know, for that time, for their own internal reasons. For like public, public opinion, probably as well. Public, propaganda purposes, basically. Um, so, in other words, the faking of elements of the space program uh, is. Um, you know that that was part of the agenda, and they, they were both doing it. Both the Russians and the Amer- Americans were both doing it. They were part of the same scam, basically, in a nutshell. Um, and so they couldn't really effectively blow the whistle on each other's scams because then that would tend to think, well, that means that somebody else at a higher level is doing is you know oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of organising the scams or encouraging the scams or prompting the scams or whatever. Which is, you know, was it, essentially what was going on. Was it true on. as well? Um, John F. Kennedy reached out a Russian. For Apparently, it is. I mean, I was re- again. If you read um, Richard Hoagland's book, Dark Mission, which I read that fairly recently, actually, even though it's I think nine or ten years old now, he talks about that. That uh, initially Kennedy had actually wanted to do a joint Soviet-U.S. Yeah, mission to the moon in the early sixties, and I think Khrushchev initially declined. And then later on, he became more amenable for whatever reason. I think after they'd uh, maybe, I can't remember what it was, but it's in Hoagland's book. And he, Hoagland says that Khrushchev actually did want to cooperate with the Americans later in the 60s over a moon mission, but something else got in the way. I don't know whether it was that Gary Powers incident with the spy plane or whatever. It may have been after that that, that all broke down. But, the, but Hoagland mentioned this in his book. Um, Richard, C. Hoag- Richard C. Hoagland uh, used to work at NASA as a curator and he runs a website called enterprisemission.com um, and he's produced some very interesting evidence over the years but I've got a lot of questions about Richard Hogan which I go into in Secrets in the Solar System um, so um, yeah so I but basically I think that the whole space program the manned space program has some serious questions both on the American side and on, on the Russian side um, one particular thing I did put in the secrets book because it's I think the easiest to explain 
as a piece of evidence I came across oh, seven or eight, nine years ago now on a, on a web page. And it's a photograph um, of Charlie Duke's family. Now, Charlie Duke was, I think, an Apollo... I always get mixed up between Apollo 16 and Apollo 17, so listeners can attack me if they wish. <laughs> we get um, attacked a lot on this, so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Apollo 16, but if it's not Apollo 16, it's definitely Apollo 17. Charlie Duke, who's one of the astronauts, he took a photograph of his family, a regular you know, paper photograph, in a plastic bag, and he puts it on the surface of the moon for whatever reason, you know. I mean, I suppose it's a, sort of, you could say, it's a bit like planting the flag, you know. Yeah. Mm. This is your, you know, uh, wife and two children in a photograph on the surface of the moon in a plastic bag. And you can see this picture in the Apollo l- libraries, you know, on the Lunar Surface Journal and uh, the various websites that have copies of the same image. Uh, but there's a bit of a problem. We're not talking about shadows. We're not talking about radiation. We're not talking about gravity. We're talking about heat. And if you look at the official sources, the average surface temperature of the moon, the average, that's in other words, not the highest, is 100 degrees centigrade. Wow. That's boiling water temperature. That's why there's no water on the surface of the moon, or very little. Some at the poles, I think, but not in the sort of main body of the moon on the surface. 100 degrees centigrade. What happens if you get a photograph in a plastic bag, put it in your oven, and switch it to 100 degrees centigrade? It doesn't burn, of course, but it does. Cur- it convolves. You call it convolution, where it curls up. Mm. And you, anyone can try that. You get a photograph, put it in a sort of ordinary plastic bag, put it in your oven, leave it for, you know, five minutes and look at it come back. I mean, it won't burst into flames, mm-hmm. but it will. The plastic will wrinkle it, will crinkle up. The, the photograph will curl up. Is that in, in, even if there's no, like, um, oxygen there to... Correct. Not to do with... Because, you see, on the, if you look at the physics of it, people know about physics, um, you have three ways of transferring heat energy from a source to a destination. You have radiation, you have convection, and you have conduction. Conduction is where you're actually physically touching it. So, you know, you put your finger on your electric cooker and it burns you because the heat is conducted to your finger. You have radiation, which is where you hold your hands over the cooker, the red-hot cooker, and you can feel the heat in your fingers from the radiation. Mm -hmm. And then you have convection, which is where you can be standing a few feet away from the cooker, but you know that it's on because you can feel the warm air, yeah, yeah. you know, wafting mm-hmm. over you because it's been on for a few minutes and the air heats up and you get the heat transmitted through the air molecules. Now, of course, there's no atmosphere on the moon, so you don't have any convection. You can't have convection. So the only way that you can transfer heat is by radiation, which is coming directly from the sun, and, co- and conduction from the surface. So you then, if you again look at the physics, once that photograph gets that heat, if it wants to cool down again, it's got to get rid of that heat. It can't do it by convection. A lot of the cooling mechanisms that we have here, like on your fridge, that's essentially cooled by convection because you put the heat out of the back of the fridge and then the air yeah. rises and the warm air, you know, the air, the cold air is heated by the veins at the back of the fridge and that 
that's conviction. Mm. So a fridge wouldn't work on the moon. Yeah. Like we have in so I was going to say, Chris, there you go. Go and get a plastic bag, put all the pictures of all your girlfriends in a bag and put it in <laughs> and burn them all. <laughs> in the, in, in, you know, and you could do that now in the name of a scientific experiment, you see, but not for, not for uh, any other reason. Um, so, yeah, so, so in other words, if you look at that particular picture, that, that photograph that photograph has no way to lose that heat. You've got the sun beating down on it for a few minutes. Mm. You've got the hot surface underneath of it. How is it going to get rid of it? Can't. So it's going to it's going to crinkle up the plastic. It's going to crinkle. The photograph is going to convolve. So that photograph with Charlie Duke and his family, with a, you know the physical photograph lying on the surface, that was taken in a studio. Mm. No ifs, ands, or buts. That photograph was taken in a studio. That's not a theory. You can see that that's what mu- they must have done. It's not to do with shadow lengths. It's to do with the data that they've given you from the official sources of the moon, the physical characteristics of plastic and paper, which don't change when you get to the moon, right? So, so that that to me, that single photograph mm. proves that that was taken in a in, in a studio. You know, there's, and of course, there's all other kinds of evidence as well. But that, if I was you know, want to focus on one particular thing, that is the thing that I focus yeah. on. Mm. So, you, so you know now, like, sort of in the modern day era now, how we talk about, like, if you, you can go on, sort of, I mean, all over the news and things like that, they're talking about how NASA is sending probes into space and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, and it always comes back is that they just they talk about how they're just finding sort of. Um, Certain certain anomalies and sort of ice and bacteria yes. and things like that. But do you think it actually goes deeper than that? I mean, are they just sort of? I think it does. I mean, and and one one of the things that I've put in the book, which is quite easy for people to verify, is the history of the alleged discoveries that they've made. Particularly, you were starting to say about on Mars. Yeah, yeah I think And this is something I really only kind of got into my head um, from looking at the pattern of things that had been going on after about two thousand and four. Mm. So I had followed this, most of the space discoveries um, since the 70s, basically, since I was a kid. So I knew, for example, that they'd had this probe called Viking, um, which was, they spent a billion dollars on Viking. They had two orbiters and two landers. An orbiter goes around the planet, and obviously a lander goes down, lands on the surface. Um, and and they... Um, actually had these landers go onto the surface of Mars, according to NASA, uh, in uh, July 1976. And uh, I think both of them had these little digger arms on them. Certainly one of them did. I think both of them did. And they, a little digger arm came out, dug into the soil, got this soil into the Viking probe, dropped some chemicals on it, or dropped the soil into some chemicals. Mm. And then they got this reading from um, uh, the, the chemical reaction, which was basically they doped some of this chemical with radioactive carbon, carbon-14. And this was Dr. Gilbert Levin's experiment. They called it the labelled release. And that basically, without going into more details, was showed that it was highly likely that there were microbes in the soil of Mars. Oh, wow. Um, and they they they'd actually metabolised this nutrient that they with the carbon fourteen and it given off slightly radioactive carbon dioxide as a result of their respiration. You know, this is sort of basic things. You know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, my background is in computer science and um, yeah. and a little bit of physics, but mainly computer science and IT. That's what I did working for twenty years. But I did do, you know, I did uh, O level biology. 
and I did A-level chemistry, so I know a little bit about those topics. And things like respiration, what's respiration? It's gas exchange, converting oxygen into carbon dioxide you know, through biological processes yeah. in your body. And that's what they did with this label release experiment. They were doing that with bacteria, and it gave a positive result. And that was announced, as a, to my understanding, in 78, 79. Yes, we've discovered microbial life in the soil of Mars using the Viking experiment. Yes, that was announced at some point. I don't have an exact date for that. But then about a year after that, and I remember hearing this on John Craven's news round as he was doing that then, that they said, oh, they, they thought there were life uh, in life in the soil in these microbes, but they found it wasn't that at all. It was just a chemical reaction. Well, I've done that. It's funny you said that because uh, I don't know what, what you, I'll see what you think about this, but there also there was a, um, a study as well that came out that said they found uh, liquid water on Mars as well on the surface That's of right. Mars. But then if you, uh, if you notice as well, that was also refuted and brought back again. So there's something going on there where certain yep. people try to leak information out and then they, they make a mistake and then they think, no, we better not. That that's exactly right. Mm. So so that 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 so you've got basically two angles on this particular question, and this is what this is where most of the TV astronomers are still stuck. And we're talking forty years now because Viking landed seventy six. We're now forty two years on from Viking. Forty two years. You know that's most of my lifetime. Um, and as you say, they they've they've they've, they've, they've t- put things out and then taken it back. Mm. This is this is the pattern that I was referring to in a few minutes ago, that of what we've seen. So they they, they say they took back the thing, and then um, the liquid water reports. I think the first one I became aware of was in dated in two thousand. Although I didn't become aware of that report until a few years after that. So there's a report on astronomy picture of the day where what they've got is they've got this other probe which went up many years after Viking. It was uh, Mars Global Surveyor, which was basically up in space 20 years after Viking. And um, they um, showed this photograph on Astronomy Picture of the Day. It's in the book, it's in the PDF, um, where you've got this, like, trace going down the side of a crater, these little, like, um, you know, uh, like looking at the base of a riverbed where you can see the pattern of water flow and they said is this liquid water on Mars you know, and that's what they were talking about in the year 2000 and uh, then they did this again and they said have we disco-? they did another picture about four years later something similar um, and I think it was when was the next one I think it was well the next one that was to come out was uh, 2004 where they said they discovered methane mm. which is you know basically methane's what happen again when you metabolize things when you digest you know from digestion you convert uh, biological matter and you digest it and you get methane coming off it's typically produced by biological processes not geological processes that's the thing that was announced in 2005 uh, or even 2004 actually i think it was 2005 when they announced it but they discovered it in 2004 vittorio formisano who was a uh, a chemist, I think, uh, that worked on the Mars Express probe. So we're talking about another probe, you know, we're talking yeah, about yeah. a European Space Agency probe from 2000, and it was launched in 2003, Mars Express. And he was saying, oh yeah, I, there's methane in the atmosphere, and I think it could be indicative of life, but to check for that, we'd need to go to the surface and dig the soil. Yeah. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah, but that's what Viking did in 1976, Vittorio, and, and that's not even mentioned. In that report... Viking is not even mentioned. It doesn't say, oh, yeah, so this ties up with the data that we've got from Gil Levin from 1979. No, that's not said. So that, to me, is suspicious, that if they're trying to build, really trying to build up a picture 
of you know what's in the solar system and what's on Mars. Why aren't they referring openly to previous scientific studies? Why didn't they say, oh, well, actually, that Viking data was debunked, but now we look at it again in view of this Mars Express data. Maybe we need to check that again. Yeah. Mm. Surely that's what a scientist would do. That's what, a, yeah. <laughs> you know, if somebody is supposed to be analysing and studying data that's been gathered by, you know, we're not talking about hearsay, or oh, somebody said there was life on Mars, yeah. you know, we're talking about a previous mission by NASA itself, they're not referring to their own data. Yeah, so that's one like a bacterial level, do you think there is life life on there, to your knowledge, anyway, what you've seen? Yes, I mean, there is life on Mars, uh, and I put that in the book as to why I think that, mm. um, and there are several sections of the book, some of which seem to be a, a lower awareness of in the wider community than others like one particular one which I came across uh, for a sort of larger t- form of life are there trees on Mars for example you know oh, wow. who's, who's heard about that no, I've never heard about, I've never heard about that yeah well if you look uh, there are a couple of things which are very interesting because in 2001 uh, Arthur C. Clarke who we've already mentioned mm. yeah. he actually saw some of these Mars Global Surveyor images and he says, uh, and they're in the book. They're on. You know, you can find them on the web e- fairly easily. Just put trees on Mars, Arthur C. Clarke, into your favourite search engine, and you'll find the relevant images. Yes, I'm looking at that myself. Yeah, <laughs> you can go back to the JPL websites and the USGS websites. You can find these pictures. I can't remember the image numbers off the top of my head. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke said, "Have a good look at these images. I think there are ban- what look like banyan trees." You know, for a forest of them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, NASA and various uh, um, university geologists say, no, no, these are just sand dunes, and they're sand dunes which are warming up, defrosting, and then the the the, the ice or whatever, uh, you know, causes the uh, this part of the dune to have a darker colour. But then, when it defrosts, the, the colour lightens, and you get this mottled effect, which looks like a Vegetation. That's basically what NASA say. I'm not. That's not a verbatim quote, mm. but I put the verbatim quote in the book. Um, and you're thinking, really, is this really? This is really the case that the, what we're seeing is sand dunes that look like sand dune yeah. formations that look like trees. So you, there's that one from 2001. Mm. There is another study which was done separately by a guy. Uh, he was a really clever guy. I don't. He doesn't work for NASA. He's called Alan D. Moen. And I'm not sure what his area of specialism was. I think he was, it was it, well, he basically built a 3D model from about seven or eight of these Mars Global Surveyor images. And he saw these little rings on the surface. And this a particular portion of the surface near these certain uh, sand dunes, there were these little dark rings, right? Yeah. And it's all in the book. There's a video about it he made back then. I tried to contact him, actually, but he didn't reply. I don't know if he's changed his email address. Um, but I did send him an email. He didn't respond quite far. I put this in the book. And uh, he saw these little dark rings um, on the surface, and then he saw the same dark rings on the same part of the surface in later Mars Global Surveyor images. So, in other words, this probe had been going around the planet for long enough to have photographed the same area more than once. And because it was at different times, she had different sun illumination different patterns of shadows because of that and therefore these rings that he saw were were different so when he actually looked at these rings and how they'd moved and he modeled this with a 3d modeling package and he actually built a little physical model as well he concluded that these rings were shadows they were shadows who weren't defrosting dunes they were shadows of you know vertical structures 
and when he looked at the way these rings changed and the shape changed and modelled them, he thought they were like new trees. Oh, wow. Well, even when you were seeing there before, I know obviously they've, they've said, they have sent many probes around space and things like that, but um, about around Mars, sorry. But did you hear of them? Um, I think he was he called, is he called um, Bannenberg, was he called David Bannenberg or something like that? John Brandenburg. Who, who, who um, believed yes. that there was a nuclear... Indeed. Nuclear, what, what, what's the word for it? Nuclear... Well, conflict or a, a disaster or a yeah, nuclear like a war. Potential I mean, being a nuclear, sort of, some sort of conflict, nuclear event exchange, on the planet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what, yeah, do you, what do yeah. you think about that? Well, I'll, I'll come on to that in a sec. But just to mention the Alan D. Moen thing, um, you know, you can watch his video because he posted that on YouTube years ago. Um, and so what he was working with was NASA's own data, their own pictures, oh. you know, saying, look, you need to look at this mm. and look at how these shadows have changed. And he couldn't get anybody interested in it. Nobody was interested. In fact, they just ignored what he said. And this has been the case both with people who've found evidence of liquid water, and then there's the other guy, um, uh, Charles Schultz, who, who seems to have found evidence of fossils. That's in another chapter in the book. Um, but going back to John Brandenburg, as you asked there, talk about him for a bit. There's so, there's so much, isn't there? There's yeah, so I mean, there is a lot. There is a lot. There's a lot of stuff. And I think some people are not aware of that this stuff is there. And it, it is on NASA's websites, but they've they've successfully distracted attention away from it. You know that's that's an, an important concept to understand. Not just the data itself, but how your attention has been diverted away from it. That's why I've got the subtitle "Gatekeepers yeah. on Earth." It's the mm -hmm. gatekeepers that are helping to divert people. <clears throat> you know, and keep people away from this. Oh, God. <coughs> If I may, what I was going to say though as well, if I'm if I'm rightly speaking, I think when I read the passage in your book, and I've come across it before and I've looked as well, I think it was um, what's his call again? What's his first name? Bannenberg. What was John Bannenberg. John Bannenberg. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. he was he was uh, saying that there was some sort some sort of remnants of a nuclear explosion that had been on Mars. So then people making assumptions saying that maybe in the past. Could have there could have been a maybe a, some sort of nuclear war on the planet, which I think you explored in your book as well. But mentioned, yeah. But at which I what is like what you over mentioned as well. I, correct us if I'm wrong, because I've looked at a lot of different mm, research. Mm, mm. But there was a bit of research. I'm sure it was yours that also said that, that you explored the possibility that it could have also been an exploding star. That's that correct. An exploding planet. But we'll talk about that. So we'll do with that. But you so, can add, add, sorry, just sorry, to jump in. I just, yeah, just want to say as well what, what I loved about that though when I was reading that straight away, just to sort of give you a bit credit credit. And I said this to Chris as well that. What I noticed to you is that you're asking a question, but you're also exploring. So your analytical, analytical mind, for me as well, all, always wants to just go straight to the where the, the best mystery is. Mm. Like For mm. me anyway, the, if the story of being a war on Mars, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's mm. it gets you sort of, your mind start firing, mm. you think, oh, get excited and things like that. But then with you, you're exploring both sides, so you're not mm. just being too invested in one area. So I just wanted to sort of give you a bit credit for that because I thought it was really good. Mm. Well, thank you, yeah, and that that's the way that I try and look at things. Unless I'm certain about something, I want to obviously evaluate the evidence for both of those sorts of ideas. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's a good uh, way of going back to John Brandenburg, as you said, because I looked at his presentation that he did now, to give you a little bit of an insight into who he was, I've never, you know, I've not emailed him, I haven't communicated with him, I've never met John Brandenburg, but he was one of the people, and I only discovered this while I was uh, pinning things down to put in the book, he was one of the people that was involved in the discovery of this so-called face on Mars, which we haven't oh, really wow. talked about yet. There's a lot of people have talked about the face on Mars, and I, you know, um, I have mentioned that in the book, um, but there's other better books. If people are interested in the face on Mars, there's better books to read and invest your time in than my book for the face on Mars. And I would recommend that you read 
um, Dr. Mark Carlotto's book, The Cydonia Controversy, that's got a lot of this information in about the face. And um, oh, there's also Richard Hoagland's book, Monuments of Mars, that, that people can read that. But John Brandberg, he was involved in this discovery, and it was going back to the Viking probe that we mentioned from the 70s. Viking took an image of what looked like a face on the surface of Mars, and they actually NASA put this into a press release, they you know, made it public, and then the mission controller, Dr. Jerry Soffin, said, Oh yeah, it does look like a face, doesn't it? But actually what happened was we took another picture a couple of hours later <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it went away. You know, it was just an effect of the sunlight. I seen that picture. It was a completely different, uh, from a different angle and everything, wasn't it? So it was. Suspicious, it was. <laughs> now, and it, and it, 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 yeah, it was very suspicious. And it turns out that that is basically a bald-faced lie, and I put that in the book. That Jerry Soffin, he lied. He lied about that second picture because it's, although it's true a second picture was taken, it wasn't a couple of hours later, it was about three months later. Now, what people have got to understand is that these probes go around the planet in a certain orbit. They can only go around in a certain orbit. And you, in, in essence, you don't want to change that orbit very much because you've only got a certain amount of fuel on the spacecraft. So the more that you change, try and change that orbit, the less time your mission's going to last because you're going to run out of fuel and it's going to you know crash into the... Uh, surface eventually or, or fly off into outer space because it's run out of fuel and can't maneuver but so that so they, they did take a second picture it was about three months later it certainly wasn't two hours later hmm. and they didn't in other words when he said they'd taken a second picture at that time he actually said that jerry soffin who was the mission controller that picture did not exist or if it was certainly what they would take the second picture but it wasn't of the face it wasn't of that area because the probe was thousands of miles away two hours later. Yeah, yeah. So they go at thousands of miles an hour, these probes around the surface of the planet. So that was a lie. So it was John Brandenburg who was involved in finding this second picture. There was a second picture of the face. Um, and it was taken, I think, about three months later. Again, I've got the details in the book. And it was discovered by him and uh, two other guys, um, uh, Molinar and Petrio, um, they they discovered the second picture, which also showed a face, yeah. and the lighting was different, but it still looked like a face. And John Brandenburg got involved in that investigation that was done um, by a group called the Mars Investigation Team, which I I understand Richard Hoagland he formed that group. He basically got some guys together and said, "Look, NASA's not telling us the truth about these pictures. Let's do our own investigation." Got Brian O'Leary involved, Dr. Mark Corlotto, John Brandenburg. Um, is it Doug Molinar? Apologies, I've got his first name on. Joseph DiPietro or Pietro? I forget. I forget how to pronounce his name. And uh, there was another guy called Errol Torin. He got involved. And uh, later, still, Professor Stanley McDaniel got involved. They got involved in that alternative investigation, which was basically looking at archaeology on Mars. Not geology, not biology, but archaeology. And they were making arguments that in the region called Cydonia, there was evidence of archaeology on Mars. And I have looked at that too in my own way, and I agree with them. I think there is evidence of archaeology in Cydonia, on Mars, and I think it's fairly clear that that is the case. Um, and there are a couple of bits and bobs which haven't been made a big deal of, mm. um, which I've mentioned in the book. Um, but going back to John Brandenburg, so he sort of went on from there. So yeah, we've got archaeology on that, on that, uh, on Cydonia, on the face of Mars, on the face of Mars and the surface of Mars. 
So that means if there was archaeology there, there was a civilization. I see that hills yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that means then that civilization, as far as we can tell, is not obviously there any longer. So that civilization has gone. So John Brandenburg then looked at some other studies from somewhere. Um, and he talked about there being an unusual concentration of a, a radioactive isotope of xenon. Xenon is um, one of the um, noble gases, I think. No, that's no, that no. Sorry, it's one of the inert gases. I'm getting the noble gases and the inert gases mixed up. So um, you've got xenon, argon, krypton. They're the inert gases, and of course you have xenon in your um, electronic flash discharge bulbs. That, that's xenon gas in there. So you can have an, a radioactive isotope of xenon, which has a half-life of so many hundreds of thousands of years or whatever it is. I forget the exact figure. In certain um, Mars uh, data gathering experiments from some of the probes, they got a high concentration of xenon. This I think is xenon-134. If I, remember, I can't remember the It's in the book anyway. So Brandenburg claimed that you you only get xenon-134, or whichever radioactive isotope it is, produced in a nuclear explosion. That was his contention. And because there's a high concentration on Mars than we have, I think, on, on Earth, the only way you can get this is from nuclear bombs going off. That was his basic contention. Yeah. Um, and he did a, a presentation in 2014. It's on YouTube. It was done at the secret space program conference i think where he talks for this for about an hour but i wasn't particularly impressed by this presentation because he only talks about the xenon evidence for about 15 minutes and the rest of the 45 minutes is other stuff and then he talks about you know um the 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 the, the collapse of the uh, usa because of all the uh, corruption and everything and right. politics and all of that stuff and uh, i think he does may even mention 9-11 but he doesn't go into the details so my point is that yes, maybe he's right. Maybe there was a nuclear war, but it, he and this other fellow who I didn't mention, I should have mentioned, is uh, Dr. Tom Van Flanden, who's sadly no longer with us, as uh, Dr. Brian O'Leary has also passed on, sadly. Um, Tom Van Flanden was the chap who you were referring to. He it was he, or he was one of the main proponents of the exploded planet hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. that was really interesting. Uh, and it, and it is very interesting that I give a lot of credence mm. to that. Um, you know, again, the asteroid belt, which is in between Mars and Jupiter, if people read up about the asteroid belt, what happened to that? Why have we got an asteroid belt? And uh, the, the two basic ideas behind that are either that it's an asteroid belt is a leftover debris from a planet that never formed, or the more controversial one to, in the mainstream is that it's a planet that blew up. Um always impacted and never, I've never heard of that before you yeah. never heard no. of that no, no, it, it makes sense really. Really. it does it really does that's all I think and when you, again when it's Tom Van Flanden who was a well respected astronomer and again if you look at uh, Tom Van Flanden in the 1950s and 60s he worked for the US Naval Observatory and he was doing a lot of work on what are called occultations I think that was right where you would measure when like um, Jupiter or Saturn passed in front of a star as viewed from the Earth and if when you if you're able to pin that down you could more accurately measure where that object was in space. You can measure its orbit, measure certain things about its atmosphere and stuff. So occultations are very important. And Tom Van Flan did a lot of work on that, and he published papers. Did a, you know, he's got a PhD, and it was he that came up with this exploded planet hypothesis, or he was one of the people anyway. And there was also Emmanuel Velikovsky. He he looked into that as well and um, talked about things like that. So um, 
But if you look at what happened, for example, with, uh, and I've got a picture in the book about um, Miranda, which is one of the moons of, um, of uh, Uranus, and that uh, seems to have completely been smashed to pieces and then reformed. Oh, wow. So, so it, th- there's there's some evidence that there was a big cataclysm in the solar system. You know, we don't exactly when, but I think at least sixty five million years ago, something like that. But that is very rarely talked about. You know, the basic in thing in the mainstream is you know the solar system formed from the same material that the sun formed. It sort of condensed out. The Earth formed four billion years ago. It was very hot at first. There were lots of asteroids flying around, smashing into the Earth and bombardment, and that's what all craters on the Moon are about. And that was it. And that, that's how the solar system. And it's been the same ever since. We've had the same number of planets since. Blah blah blah. When you when you see that's a really good interesting point. Mm. So many questions from that. My head's racking. Honestly, uh, when you were saying before about uh, there could have been a potential of a, a, a cast, what's the word you kind of see cataclysm a cataclysm in um, in the within the solar system. Mm. Could that tie in? Um, I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Graham Hancock's work where he talks mm. about how an asteroid hit the planet. He believes that at the at the time, but he also believes that it wasn't that 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 single asteroid that hit the planet was actually a part of. Um, bigger asteroid mm-hmm. that's still in. I mm-hmm. think it's still. He believes that's still orbiting Jupiter now. But I mean, could I mean have you tried time them? Right. Time I mean, them I, I've heard of the various things, and so um, again, you, you you have to try and look at observational evidence to try and verify some of these accounts. Um, and there is, um, you know, data which proves that we have had impacts from objects before. Uh, as Graham Hancock says. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not sure the, of the particular um, set of data you're referring to there because I haven't read his research on that, Graham Hancock's, that is. But there are other similar events. Um, for example, if you look at the work of Wilson and Blackett, the two um, historians that have looked at the story of King Arthur, uh, Wilson and Blackett contend that a comet uh, hit the Earth in about 532 AD. 500 AD, and it actually did a lot of devastation in England, and that's basically, I think, what what caused the Dark Ages then, and a lot of people left England because it became, parts of England became uninhabitable because of the effects of this comet, Um, and there is some evidence that this comet continued to travel past the UK, and it ended up in Bolivia, because there there is uh, remains there which date from around 530 AD, which suggests that the trajectory carried it across you know, that, that direction across the planet. And and there are other things, like the, Tung- the Tunguska event in 1908. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very well documented. There was huge devastation in Siberia. That may have been um, part of a comet or an asteroid which broke up in the Earth's atmosphere and did an airburst. Some people, again, have tried to say it was an alien spaceship which blew up, you know, and yeah. various other uh, versions of that story. But there's plenty of evidence that we've been struck by rocks in the past. And so this idea that there was once an advanced civilization, such as is talked about as Atlantis, Lemuria... And that's, and sorry, but that's, that's the reason why I brought that to you there, because with you were saying before about this, I mean, a lot of people don't realise there's been a lot of sort of celestial... Um, activity within the universe that yes. can affect shifts on our planet and I was trying to, in my head I was trying to tie it in because 
if it's arguably if our like with Graham Hancock's work Fingerprints of the Gods which I've read it's really interesting which he creates a body of evidence that there has been sort of shifts and polar shifts and that's yeah. changed people to migrate to different parts of the world and things like that yeah. due to sort of the shifts but could that also be the case that that was on Mars as well I mean with you said before about the face on Mars which I've made a, I mean I'm not an expert on this but I'm just making assumptions and putting things together mm-hmm. with the nuclear work that you were talking about before and um, with the face on Mars and things like that, I mean, could it be potential that there was a civilization on Mars in the future? It's already in the past, and then maybe the were advanced. I mean, uh, uh, this is a question I want to ask. Sure, I mean, absolutely. And 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 what I've put in the book relates to that question. So yes, if we take Graham Hancock's work and say, well, he essentially seems to show very strong evidence that there was a quite an enormous cataclysm on the earth about yeah. 12,000 years ago in other words I think about 10,000 BC I think was the date he puts on it yeah. and he's he's mentioned that many times he's been talking about that for probably 30 years by now I would think yeah definitely um, and because um, he went to Durham University you know, I don't know I, I, did, yeah, I, didn't yeah, know that. I didn't know that and uh, he did yeah and um, so maybe there was a solar system wide cataclysm as some large comet came in maybe it affected both Mars and the earth but if you look what one factor I did put in the um, few facts I did put in the book is you look at this film that was made in year two thousand by Disney, um, and it's called Mission to Mars, and um, it's got uh, Gary Sign, Gary Sign, <coughs> <Don't that bit. coughs> it's got Gary Sinai's in it. My voice is going a bit now. <coughs> I'll come back in a minute. Um, it's got Gary Sinai's in it, and he. Um, uh, you know, he's one of the astronauts in this plot, and they go on this rescue mission to Mars, and they land, and there's a guy there that's been left from the previous mission who survived, and um, <clears throat> if you, you know, people can watch this film, get it on whatever Netflix, or I think there's, a, there's even a version, a sort of dodgy version of it on YouTube, where somebody's put it into a, crunched it into a corner of the screen and put a wavy pattern around the yeah. edge of it, you know, and there's people do to avoid the uh, copyright strikes. Yes, I sometimes watch a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, you can watch that film. And why I'm bringing that up is uh, at the end of that film is, is very unusual because it's like a, a sort of uh, gung-ho rescue mission where one group of astronauts goes to recognise, an- uh, recognise? Uh, rescue another uh, group of astronauts and uh, then they find this lone guy, as I say, he's on his own, he's, he's been surviving for a year on, you know, peanuts or something, whatever he's eating. And um, <laughs> he, he's been picking up these signals, and where are these signals coming from? They're coming from the face on Mars. You know, and this, is in, this film was approved by NASA, they, they, NASA cooperated in making it. And eventually, at the end of this film, uh, spoilers, everyone, so you can yeah, yeah, spoil off the next few minutes <laughs> if you want to watch we this. We do them all the time, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they basically go into the face. It looks different to how we've seen it on the Viking and certain the other images in the Mars Global Surveyor images. And um, they they are actually greeted with a with a three D holographic simulation. It's quite an impressive, spectacular scene when you see this in the film. And they walk across in the simulation, and they they're walking through the solar system, and you can see the planets orbiting the sun, and they see the Earth, and then they see Mars. But Mars isn't red; it's blue. And they're walking past Mars in this holographic simulation. And this large object travels at high speed and impacts on uh, Mars 
which may, I'm wondering about where it impacts. It may even be in the South Polar region. And then a wave of destruction sweeps across the planet and Mars turns red. And then all these spaceships come off it and fly to another planet. Or another galaxy, actually, as shown on the film. But then while this is happening, uh, an eight-foot-tall, uh, feminine-looking uh, extraterrestrial being comes up behind them and uh, is showing them all this in the simulation. And then um, she hold, holds his hand, puts her hand in her body, holds out her hand. A coil of DNA is held up in her hand. She puts this coil of DNA into a little spaceship and that flies to the Earth and crashes into the oceans. And then you see all life on Earth evolve in a, in a like yeah. a five-minute CGI, uh, two or three-minute CGI simulation oh, wow. where all the fish I'll, evolve into birds I'll, and everything. I was going to say as well, before, just go back to a great point that as well, and, um, and it is definitely a possibility, and I was thinking to my head, I mean, with the, the Mars fears as well, I mean, I don't know, obviously, like, um, what's the word, Ar- architecturally, I mean, arguably, if, if let's see if we can see, I mean, if we can see that, um, if we can see the Mars fears from far away, I mean, does that... Does that does that say to you that it's sort of it must be must be quite large? Right. Well, I mean, if you look at the scale of things, yes, the Sidonia objects are on a much larger yeah. scale than the Earth, and the face is about a mile long. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, who would build such a such a thing? That's the criticism that's used against who who's going to build something a mile long it, that's it shaped be, like a face that can be seen looking up into space yeah. that only can only be seen from or can be seen best from well, orbit. Even, even we know now as well. Even if you look at um with with a lot of when they're looking at the pyramids and things like that and all of all these different structures around the world the pyramids themselves like the great wall of china these are on on big levels and mm. arguably being done by a civilization that was more like advanced mm. supposedly obviously we know the, the supposed narrative is that people that built these were hunter-gatherer and things like that but obviously we know that means the mainstream argument has been debunked now but who knows if like we said if, if there's a face on mars there's architecturally in the past something missing of advanced civilizations. I mean, who knows? Like you said, that film, maybe, I mean, this is just putting it out there and we're like putting things yeah, out there, but who knows? Maybe yeah. a civil, well, I th- we were civilization on there and, yeah. we, and that I, planet see, was dying and we came here. That, that's that's what some people have said and I, I yeah. explore that a bit in the in the, one of the later chapters of the book in that I regard that NASA film as a partial disclosure. Now, you've got to be careful because I think sometimes they're putting out some of the truthful information deliberately, but they're also mixing it with false information so that certainly they have, in a film like Mission to Mars, as I say in the book, they have plausible deniability because if they're sort of putting out that this has happened in the past, they're putting it into a science fiction film, not a documentary. So... You, they can say, "Well, that's just a science fiction story. No one's going to believe that." Yeah. So mm-hmm. at the same time, they can they can give that information to people like us who are thinking, "Ah, oh, they're thinking in a different way." But to the mainstream, they're also serving their own psychological operation because that helps the cover up because they're disclosing this information in a context of science fiction. So they can say, "Oh, well, that's just a fictional story." What you know, you just you just wanting to believe that yeah. now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You know, which is. A, I want to believe you back to that again. No, I don't want to believe. I want to know. I'm not into beliefs. I want to know stuff. And I think this is where, you know, you make that distinction. Do you want to know stuff or do you want to believe it? You know, I want to know stuff. I want to know if there is civilization on Mars. I don't want to have a belief about it. And um, <clears throat> and I want to know if that civilization came here. And then, and then I tie in another little bit of the story of what is potentially that story, which seemed to fit... Uh, from what I read, because this was where um, I found Stephen, Discri- uh, Stephen Gray's Disclosure Project. Yeah, Dr. Stephen Gray, yeah, yeah, really interesting. 
Uh, now he's again not to be trusted in my mind for certain things because I've, I've written extensively about him uh, in two other areas which I later came across. But he did produce uh, a package of very impressive witness accounts called the Disclosure Project back in 2000-2001. And why I'm mentioning that here specifically is because one of the witnesses who said he worked as a consultant and he worked for Boeing and he knew people in the National Reconnaissance Office, in NASA and various others uh, of those agencies, he said that a contact from NASA who was quite high up but he wasn't an administrator had told him that they knew that the face on Mars was, you know, wasn't a tr trick of light or the erosion, wind yeah. erosion or anything like that. It was a construction by, and he specifically said, it was a construction that was done by a civilization that came to the Earth 45,000 years ago. That's what he said. Now, if you look at that time scale and you know, think about Graham, Han Graham Hancock 12,000 years ago, yeah. look at some of the other stories that predate that. To me, forty-five thousand years ago is a fairly reasonable sort of figure mm. for that to be for, for us to be talking about. That seems to stack up. Um, now, do we have any other evidence that that is true? Um, well, it's it's very sketchy. But again, it, there's another whistleblower that, who I mentioned, but that was spoke to a chap called William Hamilton, who's another UFO researcher, and he said that he'd been speaking to a colonel who'd been on a ship to Mars. He'd been on a ship that could travel at eight-tenths of the speed of light, oh. 0.8c. He was told that in 1998. And he said that there was a civilization on Mars, this colonel told William Hamilton, that there was a civilization on Mars, and guess who they looked like? They looked like the ancient Egyptians. Oh, wow. That's, wow. that's what he said. So, so did he mean, like, because obviously there's, a, there's obviously mixed things with the e ancient Egyptians that... that um, are you speaking in terms of um, the ones with the like sort of the longer gated skulls and things like well, that? We said they had basically that olive skin, dark skin. Just because there's a lot of um, right. He didn't go into uh, specifics about the elongated right, yeah. skulls in this in this witness account, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but he was talking about these this civilization from, and this is in 1998. You know, so this is when really interesting. Um, it's after the face uh, pictures have come out, but it was. Um, it was still while some of the Sidonia controversy was still going on, and it's all kind of died away now, all that Sidonia controversy. You know, because some of the stuff I've written about in this book is like 30 and 40 years old, for heaven's sake. You know, I'm mm -hmm. thinking, what, why am I even writing about this? This is old stuff, you know. Uh, some of it brings it right up to date. But, um, so in other words, it's trying to bring together, you know, I'm looking on the one hand at a science fiction film. Is it is it really science fiction? Yeah. But I'm entertaining the idea in looking at all of this that it might not be science fiction that's the important distinction it might, might still be science fiction but maybe it's not 100% science fiction maybe you know, because NASA didn't want to know about the face they tried to cover that up so why are they approving a film that's got it in it and giving it this sort of story why are they involved with that yeah. and why are they cooperating with that film being, and this is the question that Richard Hogan rightfully asks in his short analysis of that film I've, I've put in a few more bits and bobs that's the question that I ask and I, I encourage other people to ask for themselves and think about it for themselves and come to their own kind of position on that. Um, because I think that, that the way that, you know, we, we were talking earlier before we started recording a bit about consciousness, th this is to do with your consciousness mm -hmm. and the way that these people, you know, there is a group that's running the planet, I have no doubt about that. There is a separate group of beings or people or whoever they are, they are... You know, whatever story it is about Mars and the civilization that was there, which I think there was, 
and it, whether it came to the earth or not or came from somewhere else to the earth you know, and then went to Mars whatever way around it is whoever is running the planet knows more about that story than we do mm. they know a lot more about it and they don't want us to know about that story mm -hmm. they do not want us to know for whatever reason I don't quite know the reason I have certain suspicions but I think if you look at all of the evidence some of the topics we've spoken about in this recording and many others they don't want us to know that what that story is yeah. because it will affect our consciousness and when our consciousness has changed it's far more difficult for them to exploit us in the way that they are exploiting us now that's that's at what's at the base of all all of this i i would argue and i'm not you know because i'm not the first to say it, I perhaps just say it in a slightly different way to yeah, what yeah. other people have said. I believe that um, if something I'm going to have to go as well, <laughs> and I have to go as well. So we'll keep. Should, 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 we, should we pause then? Keep should we, yeah. Are you going to keep rolling? Yeah, we'll keep rolling. Um, I was thinking at one point. Um, oh, I lost my trail of thought there. So I was talking about consciousness. Oh and yeah, uh, here we go. Um, yeah, I was thinking there at one point. If um, on a grand global scale we were introduced into this idea straight away and it was found to be true and there was actual scientific evidence and NASA eventually held the hands up and said yes we would we'd like to actually conclude that this is a truthful evidence that we've held back and fundamentally we're getting it all out this is the truth this is exactly what we know and, and that would affect us in a sense of like liberating us really in a sense where we can then become it like an enlightened sense of being so I think eventually in order to progress like not just the truth of like who we are or the existence of mankind but the truth of who we are is potentially the future of who we are because it's kind of this information which is going to enlighten the individual to perceive like there is vastness towards who, who we are as humans and there is potential where humanity could be we could be another earth um, another world like entity going from traveling from place to place and it ex and this type of like um knowledge expands the mind and expands the creative thought and it's it's so easy to just dumb down the fact that uh, a civilization could be rooted in consumerism mm. and different ideologies such as that which keep us on a limited plane but when we're actually looking on the, um, at the grand scale of vast knowledge of like who we are and our identities from the past these if we were to be exposed the truth that could be the enlightenment that global consciousness would get and I think that's what the truly terrified of really uncovering because beyond that there's nothing left I, I tend to agree and I think you know the, there's various sort of uh, dimensions to this uh, whole issue in that you know you can argue that they're like you say you know like you suggested they just revealed that the, the, there was a civilization on Mars and they announced tomorrow that, that they'd been covering that up uh, there would be ramifications both for themselves and for the rest of civilization, and so there is an argument which says that there is something happening, and not an overt level. It's it's something that's happening within the cosmic order of things, if I can use that sort of uh, expression, which is where we've now got a setup here on Earth with the current situation that those who want to find out what we're talking about and whether it's true or not can find that out mm. in other words you can find out all about you know the civilization on mars not all about it but you can find out enough about it yeah you know you can find out about the health cover-ups you can find out about um you know how the nature of your soul has been covered up 
and, 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 and religions have helped to cover that up over the years. You can find out about all of that stuff if you want to do that. But as you, uh, you know, as we sort of touched on briefly, I think, in the early conversations, some people don't want to know. They really do not want to know what we want to know. They, yeah. They're quite happy with, you know, watching the soaps, watching the sports, watching the footy. And if you try and bring this stuff to their attention, it just bounces off, basically. Yeah. They may just kind of just go right over the top of their heads, and, oh, really, you know, and they're not yeah. interested. Or they may actually get aggressive and even violent, you know, in, in extreme cases, to, mm. towards you. You know, and, and we, we know, you and I, we both know that um, this can break up families. You know, when you start talking yeah, in these terms and you start talking about, you know, the banking conspiracy, the health conspiracy, the space conspiracy, you know, space exploration conspiracy is essentially what we're discussing now. Mm. It can break you away from your friends and family, depending on you know, to the, the, how, what their attitude and how they feel about it. So... It's not something that we can just, you and I can just say, we can just sort of say, we're going to put all this out and then the world is going to be wonderful. Yeah. It may though as well, just to quickly touch on as well, not to go too far off topic, but it may actually, what I've noticed is actually may may find more better friends because there was periods in my life where I was um, was trying to bring this, like spreading little seeds, I call it to people, and um, people were sort of... uh, putting their noses up and not really sort of taking the information on board they were just sort of turning the backs on it but then you actually find when you're in them little pockets um, you find more and more people who are willing to engage with you and yeah. then from there you find more beautiful engaging topics and you actually find out who you what, who you are yes. more as a person that's what I find yeah. anyway I agree with you I agree with you on that and I think that uh, you know you do think about your own um, you know your own spiritual development or whatever you want to call it yeah. and where you get to with that and uh, you know you have to be respectful, both of the information that you're learning. And there's a, a really interesting uh, person that I was speaking to, and we were talking about the 9/11 stuff more. He's he's more been we've more talked about that than the, the solar system stuff. But he basically said that when you learn the truth about 9/11, it's it's really it's really tough. It's really really hard to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. And he he then basically says, well, you know, you've got, really got to be careful who you cho- who you actually choose to show that to. It's like, in and it's like you know you you, it, it, you could blow their minds, you could ruin their lives yeah. by showing them this information for some people. Say what Neil says in the matrix, doesn't he? Some people aren't ready to be unplugged. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, and there are various factors, various areas of research. Nine eleven is one of them, and there are others too. You know, um, you've got to be really careful. You've got to respect the the power, or not so much the power, but the, you know, the the, the gravitas of of, of what you're dealing with here and how that... And and sometimes it can take a while to do that, a few years, because you're trying to put this in people's faces because you know it's important. Yeah. But sometimes it's not the best thing to do because Mm. um, you get the wrong reaction or it just doesn't... It just bounces off. Do you, do you yeah, think in the do you think in the future? Because um, obviously to go back, obviously touch a bit more on spaces. Because I had to travel. Be, uh, travel. I had to travel. I had a question <laughs> before I wanted to touch on was because um, obviously we're looking now in the media and things like that. I mean, obviously there's a theory anyway that obviously that Tesla's obviously planning on going to Mars and wants to populate Mars and things like that. Uh, po- populate Mars. Populate Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you think in the future? Because I mean, he, he had a press conference as well. I mean, I know there's a lot of conspiracies around uh, Elon Musk as well, and I also have my own. Um, theories about him as well but 
arguably in the future we are going to see um, like space in general be more privatised I mean we're looking now obviously there's other there's companies from all over the world I mean do you think that will open up if that is the case and more companies come in do you think that could open up the no. line for truth or do you not no. say it no no I think I think there's a couple of things there. the, the, the Tesla and Mars thing is, is really interesting because it does appear that Tesla knew what he was doing yeah and there is that uh, as you alluded to there the um um, him picking up signals apparently from Mars. Now I haven't put that in the book, and I'm, I can't remember the full story of of that uh, of that uh, scenario where Tesla apparently picked up signals from Mars. Yeah, there sorry, is... I, I made a mistake. I meant I meant Elon Musk. Sorry, not Tesla. I get confused. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, Elon, okay. Elon Musk company Tesla. Yeah, because he's cleverly, yeah, yeah, he's cleverly, car, yeah, cleverly yeah, called yeah, his he's, company he's Tesla. Tesla car. Yeah. So it gets in the human sight, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, basically the, the whole. Uh, I haven't put the uh, Elon Musk thing in the new book in the um, old in the Space Secrets of the Solar System book, but I am probably putting it in the current book that I'm writing, um, which is going to be about the secret space program, which sort of is it answers your question in that there will be no significant developments in manned spaceflight uh, before the end of my lifetime, oh. unless some of the information that we talk about in these sorts of podcasts is more widely known mm. the military industrial complex con currently controls the technology and uh, to both to get into space and the knowledge of what's out there that is essentially under the control of the military industrial complex and black programs yeah, yeah. and basically in a phrase elon musk richard branson that's just another Easter egg hunt. It's just a public distraction. Yeah, umbrella effect. Yeah. You know, and you only have to look at what they're doing and they haven't done anything that wasn't done forty years ago. You mm. know. Yet look at computer technology. How much has that changed in the yeah, last yeah, forty definitely. years? You know. So there's no comparison, you know. And as uh, that analogy that was made a few years ago by somebody, you know, if if the same developments in automobile technology had been made as in computer technology, your car would do fifty thousand miles to the gallon, yeah. you know, and uh, <laughs> you know would do five thousand miles an hour, you know. Well, I, you know, you can make up some figures, but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. In other words, the changes in the automobile industry and technology used therein has been incremental, whereas the changes in um, uh, computer technology have been, you know, quantum leaps, as it were, as they yeah. use that, that phrase. And we're not going to see any any noticeable um, changes um, in, in in space technology, to my knowledge, mm -hmm. really. I mean, there's been various talk, for example, of things like ion drives, um, you know, but not anti-gravity drives. And this this is, again, what I'm writing a little bit about in the new book, and I'm not, I'm not first to do this. Oops, a lot of people have written about this. But the, the fundamental technologies which will change our... Uh, ability to access space will be energy technologies and propulsion technologies mm. and what what have we seen in in the last 40 years on those we've seen okay we've seen some solar nice solar panel development which solar panels have got a lot better and um but we've still got chemical rockets you know mm. what about concord let's just let's just have a look at concord oh yeah you know that was in itself as um the vastness of concord how you could um, was it New York to London in three hours? Three yeah. hours, yeah. and that's just can't do that now. Yeah. That, that was in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Scrapped the program, didn't they? Yeah, and they've not replaced it. Why? You know, surely with all these advancements in uh, material science and stuff, 
you'd have something that was better than Concorde. Didn't they say it was too expensive to run? Something like that, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, what else are they spending the money on? The billions of pounds that right. we're racing. Right. In research but, and development, they still but, can't figure that out. You know, we can show quite clearly now, particularly when we go back to 9-11, that there is r- the technology which was used to destroy the towers, for example. We haven't talked about that, but maybe we want another, another interview. But that technology is real. Somebody has that technology. It isn't a theory. It's not a theory. Somebody has that te- technology. Somebody knows how to use it. Somebody has engineered it. Right? That somebody is not us. They're not really connected to us. It's another group. So this really is the group that's that's controlling everything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have the ability not only to develop the technology, but to keep it covered up. That's why I'm sort of pottering about in the back room in there, writing these books. To, to try and work against the cover-up that they've yeah. successfully done for before, 50 be, years. Before as well, uh, when you were talking about this, like a secret space programme and things like that, and you're talking about technology there, I mean, do you think there's... is Has there been sort of a... Um, I mean, even look, look at us now on the planet now, we have... A, um, we've talked about this before, where you, we see like 50 years ago, technology now in this in a 50... Not even a 50-year period, even 30-year period, the technology is like sort of exponentially sort of expanded. I mean, do you think that's... A, um, you, could there could be potential for you? I know you've looked into UFOs, and I, I didn't see this. I haven't seen you uh, mm-hmm. talk about this, mm-hmm. but I mean, um, is it a guy called uh, Bob Lazar who I came across? We've talked to you a few times about, but he was involved supposedly in the back engineering of UFO technology. I mean, could that be? Uh, have you ever explored that potential? Yeah, well, I will just take a break. And yeah, we'll no talk problem. About that. <laughs> so, yeah. You've heard about that, though, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Have I? Uh, what we watched um, just heading over was a was a fascinating insight and especially do you think it's like the development now is is going into like more progression in the um, from the like I'm thinking in the Bob Monroe Institute in itself in terms of like sort of technology is getting better and better for yeah like, for what we're what we're going into right now I think technology is it's arguably that technology is getting better you're you referring to the video that we're watching about how the ancients in the past could have mm. had a technology that was more so there's an argument that technology in the past was they were advanced as well and you're using technology is that what you're referring to yeah yeah so do I think that technology now is, is better compared to then no mm-hmm. I think they were different I think in the past ancient civilizations in the past may have been a different form of technology yeah I think so we, like, I think it could have been more earthbound technologies whereas now we are more sort of like like I said to you before, if you have a, if you have two different types of petri dishes, and you like this is like a child experiment in the bedroom, you have two different civilizations, and you have one civilization that develops evolutionary differently to the other one. Mm-hmm. That both of them are going, they might they're going to turn out a little bit different. So their technology that they find might be different compared to our technology. That's what I feel anyway. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight, isn't it? How we. And especially this is a fantastic episode, by the way, and I'm really hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, I'm really like fundamentally. The vastness of what we haven't been told is on a, a mass scale. Yeah, yeah. And what is absolutely terrifying is about how much we've been hidden, and yeah. the fact that what what is being hidden right now is on a scale of no other proportions. I mean, whenever whenever through time, how much has been hidden? Yeah. And on a global scale right now, I'm just saying, um, on a global scale right now, is anything even like matched how much we haven't been told? Like the, from the vastness of what what's actually hidden, has there ever been a point in time where that hasn't actually occurred? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I don't really want to go back to the uh, Bob Lazar that's what story. We just yeah, yeah, jump back in, jump back in. Yeah, so I mean, Bob Lazar is an interesting case, and uh, you know, it's become become one of Richard Hall's cat 
catchphrases. Uh, one of Richard Hall's catchphrases is uh, "It's all a bit bobblers are." You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. strange. And um, he was a fascinating person, him. Really yeah, well, he's, st- he's still around. So my, uh, you know, understanding of that account is that basically, um, I think he was involved in some secret research. Yeah, I do definitely. Um, and he was involved with possibly some sort of back engineering work um, in Area 51. But there are a few, certainly a few problems with his story, which others have criticised, such as uh, where this he said he said to have worked in this S4 lab, which he said was at a certain location. But apparently, it's not this S4 lab is not where he said it was. It's somewhere else, according to other sources. Um, and he also can't remember certain facts about his college education, apparently, which is rather odd. Um, but nevertheless, there's no doubt in my mind that he is a skilled engineer, and he's actually separate to all the sort of uh, flying saucer back engineering stuff. What people are perhaps less familiar with is Lazar's work on um, this uh, hydrogen storage system, which he used for a hydrogen car where he developed a metal hydride to store hydrogen so that you didn't have to store it in a pressurised tank. So he's actually developed a reusable hydrogen car uh, storage system, uh, completely independent of everybody else, and he developed his own uh, material to actually store this hydrogen. And he can drive this car for like 200-odd miles, and you can shoot the hydrogen tanks with with a gun, and they won't explode because of the nature of the storage material. Did you hear about his, um, what was it called again, Element? I mean, you might refer- Element 115, Element yeah. 115. I mean, what's interesting to me um, is that, so he supposedly, well, that I, was that I, was the, the portion system. I think system that's disinformation. Do you really listen? Yeah. I think that's partly... I'll, I, that I'll part just tell you that. something about that, which is interesting. My, you know, I don't know if you know this, but yeah. um, obviously when I came across that work where he was talking about that, yeah. and um, he said, well, basically the story is that Bob Lazar, supposedly this was the element that was sort of uh, making the UFOs obviously come off the ground. That was their sort of engine of that UFO. But what's interesting to me now is it is that element. So that was um, so Bob. How how long ago was Bob Lazar when he was? Well, I think I know what you're going to say. If my may may preempt you, and that that element was later discovered or later. It was produced. on the periodic table yeah. added to the periodic, ta- periodic yeah. table, which I think is interesting. Well, it, it it is interesting indeed. Yes, I agree. It's interesting, but you have to be careful about how you um, consider that that evidence, which I'll come to in a minute. So I think that I think that Bob Lazar was involved in research. But I heard a particular interview with Bob Lazar, John Lear and Gene Huff. I think it was about 2008. I think I've got this interview on my website somewhere. And they're talking about um, the element 115 that you mentioned. Yeah. And they are asked what happened to it because apparently, he's, according to Bob Lazar, he stole some and took it out with him from Area 51. But when they're actually asked about this, because apparently all three knew about this element 115, in other words, Bob Lazar, Gene Huff, and uh, John Lear. Yeah. But when they're actually asked about what happened to it, they become very occasional, and it all goes very vague. Mm. Uh, and I'd, when I heard this interview, I'd already concluded that I thought that that element 115 thing was disinformation, because essentially what Lazar was saying was that element 115 was the fuel. That was the fuel, yeah, the fuel for the yeah, engine. The fuel. I, mean, he didn't, I don't think he quite described it like that, but he said... That was either the fuel or it was a catalyst that they needed to make the engine work. I don't think that's true. Mm. I think that these uh, propulsion systems don't really need fuel. They actually can suck energy out of the vacuum when they know how to do it. They they might need a little tiny bit of fuel initially to kick off the, um, the reaction... 
But once the reaction gets going, they can get energy from the vacuum and it will self, it's self-running. It is a perpetual motion type of thing. <coughs> so I think that they put the element 115 disinformation in both to sort of essentially try and discredit Bob Lazar. But then again, that had the side effect that when element 115 again was, was produced, I think at Berkeley University in about 2002, I think they made it originally, they could then re, re, you know, reignite the Bob Lazar story. Oh, yeah, well, he was right after all, because they've now produced it. If you look at what they actually produced, they produced something like two atoms of it. What Can you, can you power uh, you know, something with two yeah. atoms of a, of a material? And, and it only existed for like 12 nanoseconds or whatever it was. Yeah. And I think they've improved that now, and they can maybe get it to last for, you know, I don't know, a microsecond or something, you know, um, which is a millionth of a second. Yeah. But it's... You know, that's why I think it's disinformation. It doesn't really have any practical application. Mm. Could could have something not um, along the line of, of maybe with them with that blueprint, maybe something could have went wrong with the blueprint. I mean, because at the time when he did bring that blueprint forward, I know he obviously might have that knowledge in the mind and stuff, but maybe the, um, there was some... When the passing of information, something could have been tweaked. I mean, you know, like in science, if you have like an experiment, you have engineers, mm. and you, you get the slightest one little bit of detail out, out of correct place, it would it would change the whole game. I mean, could could have that happened with Bob Lazar? Well, you I mean, I think, I think, I think Bob Lazar is clever enough to report accurately what what or he was working sorry, on. Sorry, just jump in, or maybe I thought my head there, or maybe as well. Bob Lazar might have not wanted to. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making assumptions. Maybe Bob Lazar was clever enough to know that if he actually did give them the correct thing, is someone would actually take that away from him and use it in an incorrect way on mm. the planet. Uh, the, the, you know, there are there are all kinds of possibilities, some of which only Bob Lazar will know, of course. Just making assumptions. Uh, yeah. So so um, I I think my basic take on the Bob Lazar story is that the basic idea of what he was talking about was true, and this is what essentially what Boyd Bushman. Um, said Boyd Bushman was a, a um, chief research scientist at Lockheed Martin and he did an interview with Nick Cook in 1999 and I've also got another uh, shorter interview of Boyd Bushman from about five years later where he basically says of the Lazar story that he thinks basically Lazar was putting out the cover story for the technology which he actually worked on and so in other words Boyd Bushman believed that Lazar did work on some technology but the story that he was putting out was the cover story which you know some of which have probably been given to Lazar mm. they, they told him how parts of this worked and they wanted his input into it but they, what they told him wasn't the true story you know it's a bit like the Mission to Mars film that I was on about where they give you this story about the Martian civilization being wiped out by an asteroid impact and then coming to the earth but that might not be the, the exact story. It might not have been an asteroid impact. It might have been a nuclear yeah. war. You know, it might have been um, some other type of war or a huge volcano erupted on the planet or something like that. Yeah. You know, it shift, somehow shifted its orbit and that's what destroyed the civilization. So, you know, you can give most of the correct information but then make the story disprovable by putting false information into it. If you, if you need to, it's like a backup plan. If you later, that story goes where you don't want it to go and it's getting too much traction, you can then, you know, pull, pull it back again and put and disprove it by by putting false information into it. Perfect. But um, but if you listen to Lazar's account and you know in the way that he describes it, I think he's probably telling the truth in that he was involved in this secret project, some type of reverse engineering project. He says himself he doesn't want you to believe him. You know, um, you look at his other research, like with the solar powered, uh, sorry, yeah, the solar powered hydrogen generator and the hydrogen storage system. He clearly knows his stuff. You know, he clearly knows his stuff. 
Um, and he has had no desire to gain from the UFO uh, circuit. Mm. He, he was a reluctant whistleblower. He didn't want to come out and do it in 1987, was it, or 88, that sort of time. Didn't want to do it, but he did. He was encouraged by others. So those circumstances tell me that there's something important in the Bob Lazar story, but it's not 100% true. Yeah, it's interesting. I love how you uh, brought that forward there. I mean, is, in, in terms of like UFOs, and obviously I know that UFOs are a big sort of... Uh, big sort of element for you where you like to sort of dig into and it was it is for me as well i mean but within the ufo sort of conversation what's some of the most like for me anyway obviously bob lazar wasn't interesting mm. one for me mm. that pulled me into it mm. and made me question a lot of things about it but is there any ones for you that stand out in your mind that's been a big yes. part of you, yeah. your life yes i mean there are, there are two two or three cases which uh, i i tend to speak about in preference to others uh the first one being travis walton's case uh who was the forester and I met Travis Walton, I met him a couple of years ago at one of the conferences. He's a good guy, you know, he's totally genuine. Uh, and his story's been out since it happened, basically, which is 1975. So he's been telling the same story for like 43 yeah. years now, you know. And um, he was a, a lumberjack, basically, as we'd call him, a, a you know, lot logging worker yeah. in Snowflake, Arizona. Um, and I think the place they were working at was called Turkey Springs, I think it was. And they were basically uh, doing some work for the Forestry Commission there, chopping down trees. And uh, they'd finished the day's work. There were, I think there were six of them altogether. Six or there seven of them. There were either six or seven of them in their party with chainsaws and whatnot and gear. And they came down off the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, they saw a red light over the forest. And they thought, is it a forest fire? No. And then they stopped the truck, and what did they see? A flying saucer in you know hovering about what fifty foot off the ground, yeah, uh, thirty feet in diameter, something like that. And they're all going, oh my god, you know what's that? Travis Walton jumps out of the truck, runs towards it, and they're going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, he was Travis Walton was a bit of a tearaway in those yeah. days. He described himself, you know, um, and uh, he's looking at it and looking at it, and then they see that some sort of beam of some kind or I don't know if they actually saw the beam but they see Travis sort of levitated into the air and then thrown back yeah. and he lands on the ground you know he's limp uh, and they think he's dead oh. and they just mad panic they drive off you know and they drive down the mountain for a few minutes but then the guy who is driving the van who's called Mike Rogers he's actually ends up being Travis's Walton's brother-in-law later so they're you know they're good buddies and um, they, he, he drops the guys off just a few hundred yards down the mountain or whatever, half a mile, and he says, I can't just leave Travis. I can't just leave him there. That's not right. So he leaves them there, and he, gets, gets, he drives back up to where Travis Walton was uh, impacted by or lifted up. He's gone. Travis not there. Oh. He's gone. That, that, that reminds me of the uh, the Rencham. Uh, it's called the Rencham Forest one, where it was a. I think I might be pronouncing that wrong, but Reynolds Forest. Yeah, yeah. and it was yeah. a basically yeah. a military base where you, uh, similar to what you said, where it was a red light and the the military. A lot of right. The well, that that, that, that out, event. Yeah. Well, that, well, we'll maybe talk about that as well. That's another important uh, case. Um, but to finish the Travis Walton thing, to try and do it some justice, they actually went back, but he'd gone. But then Travis Walton was missing for five days. Oh, wow. He was missing for five days, wow. and they actually went back to their community. 
they went out in the morning and it's a small community as, as seven guys and they came back as six what, what's going to happen and over the next few days people started saying they murdered Travis Walton so they wanted to keep the money for the logging contract you know they wanted to do him out of their, their share of the money of course they were coming out saying no he was abducted by a yeah. flying saucer they're saying get lost you know yeah. and they told the sheriff that and of course he didn't believe them and there's a whole investigation that's all <coughs> documented it's all in the police record and all the people that did the investigation it's all in his book you can read Travis Walton's book uh, uh, Fire in the Sky it's all in his book tells you the whole thing the whole kitchen but anyway he came back after five days and he was about 12 miles outside of town and he rang his wife up and said oh it's Travis it's Travis and she thought it was a prank caller because the story had got out yeah. that he'd been abducted by a flying saucer so they'd had all these people calling the house to say where's Travis where's Travis oh he's been in a flying saucer yeah yeah, yeah. people you know, taking the mickey literally mm. what, can um, like, what can like John Wayne being proved <laughs> yeah something like that um, although I don't think those stories of those sorts of probings have come out in, in 75 that, that came a bit later yeah, yeah. you see those sorts of stories but I know what you mean um, so he then reappears uh, five days later and his beard's grown and he doesn't believe he doesn't know where he's been initially he doesn't realise it he thinks he's only been away for a few hours but wow. he's been away for five days and then he describes meeting these aliens and these aliens uh, basically uh, looking, looking over him you know he wakes up on this table and they're looking over him and he gets up off the table and he starts walking around the flying saucer and he starts you know, walks into the uh, control room and there's a chair there. He sits in the chair and he watches the screen, sees all the stars going past, presses some buttons, you know, and then this guy comes in with a, with a space helmet on. It's all in his book. It's all in his book. It's fascinating. It's a what, fascinating story. Was, and it, he, 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 he was hypnotised and he couldn't really give them any more information under hypnosis. In other words... Many of these accounts come out under hypnosis. Travis Walton didn't really. He gave them a bit more information under hypnosis, but no, not very little more than he actually conscious. And it was in his conscious recall. Yeah. So this is a very important case. There are witnesses. There was a police investigation. You know, his clothes were analysed. The tree rings uh, from the trees around the site show abnormal growth, which appears to be an effect of the energy which came off the graft. You know, and there's other other uh, physical evidence in the area, which is still there to this day. Apparently, some of it, um, although there's a big forest fire there apparently um, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whenever it was. But that's all in his book and various videos. So anybody that wants to investigate a bona fide uh, case where aliens and UFOs are involved, Travis Walton is one of the prime primary cases. I haven't seen that. I haven't, haven't seen mm. that case actually. I mean, mm. I've seen it. The, some ones that stick on my mind was um, the Phoenix Lights was a, a very interesting one for me. Yes, um, that's also the, a very big one. The Dome of Rock in Jerusalem that was a very fascinating one. Where have you seen that one? Where the yeah, I've seen that. I'm not sure about that case. It's an interesting one. Yeah, I'd heard that that video is fake, and there's not there's not a lot of uh, additional information. But that is a very interesting video. Yeah, yeah another one. I actually did. I told yeah. you this as well, but I looked into that, the Dome of Rock, and it was obviously, it's a very religious place in mm. Jeru Jerusalem it is. Mm. And, um, but what was interesting about me with that was it was actually was recorded from four different cameras that were that's all right. in different places. So that's the only thing that was because obviously a lot of times you have one video, but there was like four different perspectives, mm. and that straight away raised alarm bells for me. That one, mm. it does make you wonder whether it was a was a put up job of some kind. But I can't, I don't even know who filmed that. I know the one you mean, but I don't know who filmed it. There was four people, wasn't there? Yeah, I d yeah, I don't know their names. Some of the, the some of the clips have got audio on them, which generally adds a bit of authenticity to them. I think. Um, but I don't. I can't remember the exact date that they were filmed. I think it was about 
eight nine years ago something yeah, like that um but I, I can't i don't know the exact dates and times that it was filmed so that one but the Rendlesham forest case is another one where the object landed outside of the base in 1980 and colonel charles holt was involved and jim peniston and um they appear to have uh, gone up close jim peniston certainly appeared to have gone up close to this craft that landed wrote down uh, symbols that were on the side etc and uh, if anybody wants to find out about that incident, I recommend that they read uh, Georgina Bruni's book, which is called um, "You Can't Tell the People." Um, and that there's many, there's plenty of YouTube videos. The, one of the better ones, I think, is the it's called it's a bit of a rubbishy title. It's called "UFO Invasion Reynoldsham," and that was made in 2003. That's that's a pretty good documentary. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of controversy has arisen recently over that case over the one of the witnesses, but. I won't go into that now. Yeah. So one one more thing as well. Um. Um. Well, I want to touch on with you as well was um. I know in your book as well you talk about um. If if I'm standing correct, you talk about uh. Planet X, Nibiru, yes. Nibiru Planet Nibiru, whatever yes. you want to call it. A lot of people call it different things. Mm. But when I come across that bit, bit of bit of work as well, it was a while ago. I was listening to a, I think it was another podcast as well. I can't remember who was talking about it, but they were talking about how the Sumerians were supposedly been just like a lot of other civilizations in the past have been called sort of hunter gatherer and primitive and stuff like that but the the sumerians were very interesting because they had these sort of um like a sort of stone tablets would you call them and yes. um on them stone tablets they depicted all the planets in the rest right in the correct celestial sort of alignments mm. but i mean is have you have any knowledge on that sort of area about the planet i've, I've looked at that i mean I've, I've read one of i mean that most of that information has come from zechariah sitchin and yeah he's books. a very interesting yeah. guy as well yeah, he's dead now he died about uh four or five years ago, uh, sadly. Uh, but he's written this series of books called The Earth Chronicles. Uh, I've read uh, one and a bit of them. Uh, I've read the um, uh, Genesis Revisited book is the yeah. one that I've read, which is quite interesting. So Sit Sitchin's basic contention was, yes, that the Sumerian culture was very advanced. There was didn't seem to have any predecessor cultures that were, could you could line up with it particularly. And they had a system of writing, they had a system of law um, and so forth, uh, which earlier civilizations just did not have. So what was it that civilizations just suddenly appeared, you know, in the Tigris-Euphrates uh, yeah, yeah. uh, valley, or whatever they call it, in that area? Where did it come from? So he contends that uh, this, this race of beings from Nibiru called the Anunnaki came to the earth and started this civilization basically yeah, it's really interesting for you um but the planet x thing um he contends that there was a planet in a 3600 year orbit in a highly elliptical orbit around the earth and that this was the planet nibiru and uh, therefore um it, you know at certain points you should be able to see this planet and um i forget when the last passage of planet x was supposed to have been but uh you know even if it was like in 500 bc or something uh you know it still presents a bit of a problem as to fit it in with some of the other cosmology that we know about um so i've having looked fairly recently at a study in astronomy which wasn't necessarily a complete and abject attempt to debunk planet x it showed that if you look at the orbit that Sitchin drew in terms of orbital mechanics, which is a science that you can verify by yeah, looking at the way, mm. where all the planets are currently, um, he that 
orbit that Sitchin gave for Nibiru is highly unstable and it's likely that that planet wouldn't actually be able to orbit in that that orbit you know it would be too unstable it would get ejected from the solar system and so I wonder if I'm not saying that there is no planet X but I don't think I think it could have been involved with our solar system at the time, the times of Sumeria, but I think now it's probably gone. If it was, a, if it was there in the first place, it's probably gone now. Mm. And there are several reasons for saying that, some of which I've put in the book, uh, in one of the chapters about Planet X, because we've seen, in fact, I, even quite recently, we've seen stories that Planet X is going to return to the inner solar system yeah, yeah, yeah. any time now. Yeah. Literally, tw- I think 2018, I saw one a few weeks ago saying it, Planet X was going to be in the inner solar system in 2018. It's just nonsense. I mean, they, the Planet X promoters, uh, Marshall Masters is one of them, he's been saying this, that Planet X is going to be in the inner solar system for since at least 2007, so that's 11 years, and I've, mm. I've written this up in the book mm-hmm. at some length. But the, the biggest problem with those storytellers is is they ignore basic observational data. Yeah. It really essentially goes back to how we started this conversation, a telescope, all right? Now, a lot of people will claim, and I even I sh- show in the book, that NASA covers things up. They alter data, they airbrush data. I think they do all of that, and there's some instances of that shown in the book, I, I would contend. So some people then say, well, we'll jump from there. If there was a Planet X, they're going to cover that up, aren't they, Andrew? And I say, well, maybe. But remember, NASA isn't the only organisation doing astronomy. Neither is uh, ESA. There are thousands of amateur astronomers around the planet doing astronomy every single day. And there's a whole branch of astronomy, for example, called CCD astronomy. You don't use a camera to photograph stars anymore. You use uh, a CCD, a charged coupled device. And that's CCD astronomy now has been a, a thing for almost 20 years. It's become cheap enough that amateurs could afford such equipment. Mm. Um, and for example, you'll get expensive amateur setups. They'll have a, a, a PC with a telescope, with a motor drive. They'll put some software on the computer. It drives the telescope to point to a certain point in the sky, leave the telescope there, tracking the stars there for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, a minute. And then they'll do the same the next night with the computer, and the next night, and the next night. And over periods of time, they will discover that little blobs on these images have moved. And what does that mean? It means they've discovered either a new asteroid or a new comet. And they'll send that to the... um, IAU, I think it's called, and then the IAU will get somebody else to put their telescope on that, where that object is, do the same as what the other person has done, see if they can see this blob as well, and that then becomes a new comet has been discovered. And they collate that information on a website, it's called the Minor Planets Centre website. And I think they discover, if you look at their website, about a thousand new comets a month. Oh, wow. What Something like crazy. that. Something like that. Now, you, you cannot see these things if you don't have a specialist equipment that, you you know, most people are not interested in spending thousands of pounds to, to have a specialist telescope and a specialist bit of computer software to drive it. They're not interested in that. So it's, it's only a small number of people relative to the whole population of the Earth that have this equipment. It's still thousands around the planet. 
Now, these comets, these these things that they discover, as I point out in the book, I give an example of Comet Ison, which we'll discuss. Comet Ison was discovered in 2011 or 2012 by two astronomers in Eastern Europe with their fairly good telescope and their sort of computerised setup. And it was named after their group, I think, Comet Ison. And they discovered it when it was, I think, 500 million miles from the the Earth. Well, Do you know where 500 million miles from the Earth is? I've got a clue. <laughs> Out beyond the orbit of Jupiter. Now, Jupiter, which you can see with the naked eye, is 88,000 miles in diameter, right? It's hard to even comprehend that in your mind, isn't it really? Yeah, really yeah. Yeah, it's about 11 times the diameter of the Earth, something like that. You can see it with the naked eye, right? Comet Ison was further away than Jupiter when they were able to optically pick it up in their telescopes with this method. Guess how big the Comet Ison was out beyond the orbit of Jupiter and they can see it in their telescope. God knows. Do you think? I Three miles. Three miles across. Three miles in diameter. The nucleus of three miles across. And that's out beyond the orbit of Jupiter. And this is an amateur, this is not NASA. There's hundreds of people doing this. So my basic point is, I can't emphasise this enough, NASA may be able to cover stuff up, but it's much, much, much more difficult to cover stuff up with, with you know, thousands of amateurs. So if you can detect an, an object which is only three miles in diameter, 500 million miles away, and if you look at the literature... Planet X is meant to be in between the size of Jupiter and Saturn, according to what Sitchin wrote and what these yeah. Planet X websites write about. So that's about, say, 70,000 miles across. Mm. So, so just to reiterate as well, so you believe that the, the, so what you're thinking is that you believe there was a planet, but the planet now is the orbit's changed. probably it's gone. It's, gone. it's, it's not in our solar system anymore. Really good, mm. really good point. Huh? And, and I mean, this is something that N Nassim Haramine said. He said that in one of his talks years ago, probably 10 years ago, he said that. He suggested that Planet X was seen in 2003, but it was on a, it was quite a way out, uh, and it was mistaken for something else. I forget the exact thing he said it was. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's more likely. And so what they're now using the Planet X stories for, and you get, I put some ridiculous things that were sent to me by this guy. I put those in the book. I didn't name the guy. He sent me some ridiculous things, you know, about Planet X saying that it's going to, cause earthquakes and you know it was um, seen near the sun and blah 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 yeah, no, remember, it wasn't near the sun. That stuff. wasn't seen near the sun what you're seeing is a lens flare or some some such you know if planet x is near the sun it, you you would see it on loads of pictures there's loads of things that are pointing by the, at the sun you know and if you have the right right equipment you know you can you can get a, some type of image of that and if it's near the sun it's not going to stay near the sun for very long it's only going to stay there for a few few months, and then yeah. it'll move away, and you'll be able to detect it by other means, mm. which is exactly what happens with all the other planets. There are times when you can't see Mars. There are times when you can't see Jupiter because it's too near the sun, and you have to wait a few months, and it comes around the other side. It's sort of like that fact that um, that's that evidence. What they presume is evidence. It's kind of like like um, it's disingenuous to like the actual truth. It is. It is. You know, and then you get people, I've had people write to me and I've made these points with them. Oh, well, actually you can only see Planet X from the South Pole. No, that's nonsense. You can only see, if you're at the South Pole, the only object that you wouldn't be able to see from anywhere else is the one that was close to the Earth. So you think of a line of sight, you know, when you get near to the horizon, 
And if you have a tall tower, you can see it when it's above the horizon, can't you? Mm-hmm. This is, the smaller an object is, the closer it has to be to, to the horizon for you to see it. Right. Any, any object any object that's sufficiently far away from the Earth, you can see it not just from the South Pole, but from South America, you know, or from um, uh, southern India or somewhere like that. And they'll claim that they've got a telescope, the Vatican own a telescope at the South Pole, and that they're looking at Planet X from there. Yeah. That's nonsense. <laughs> it's know, like making up stuff, isn't it? It is, it's making up stuff, because the people that have got, like we talked about the technology that destroys the World Trade Center, they've got space telescopes. If there is a Planet X, they'll have a space telescope pointing at it right now. I can guarantee it, you know. The NSA, the NRO, they've got this stuff up in space. You know, the Hubble Space Telescope went up in 96, I think it was. Was it 96 or 94? It's been up in space for 20 years. It was was called the first space telescope. No, it wasn't. The NSA had space telescopes up probably 20 years earlier. The difference was they were pointing at the Earth, not at space. Other than that, they're exactly (laughs) the flipping same as the Hubble, you know. And there are stories about this, about how they stabilise them and stuff like that. So when people say, oh, you know, oh, well, they, you can't see Planet X with your eyes because it's dark. Well, that doesn't matter either, because even if Planet X was totally black, if it was big enough, you'd see it pass in front of other stars. All right, so that's the, back to the occultation thing that yeah. I mentioned earlier on. And that's already used in astronomy, where another object passes in front. That's how the rings of uh, Uranus were discovered. They were discovered through a process of occultation by observing how the rings passed over a star and the light changed, you know, as the rings passed in front of it and they detected, I think, four or five rings and that was back in 1977. Read up about that. That's fascinating. Mm. So when you were talking about comets before and stuff like that, I mean, do you think... Do you think in the future that's one of the one of the things that we need to be focusing more on? Because I know obviously there's a lot of researchers in the past talk about that's arguably what happened to the dinosaurs, that's what happened to past civilizations in the past. I mean, there's also as well researchers who talk about that's what happened on Mars, there's remnants of a lot of asteroids hitting Mars and things like that. I mean, do you think that's something that we need to be more open to as a civilization in general to be more focused on an external threat like that? I think maybe not so much focused on, but be aware of certainly, yeah, yeah. and that's what this going back to this uh, minor planet center that is one of their briefs. And I think when we saw this um, uh, Ch- Chelyabinsk uh, object, which you know went over Russia and blew out windows, you know it was quite a large rock. Uh, it pretty much blew up in the atmosphere, but it did do some physical damage on the ground through the sort of impact wave from the explosion in the atmosphere. Mm. Um, Again, there's been various talk about, because the detection equipment has got better now, again, CCD astronomy, uh, detection techniques, you know, better uh, radar, better uh, technology for detecting remote objects Mm. generally. That has happened in the last 30, 40 years. So they've now actually found more near-Earth objects, NEOs, they have a name for them, near-Earth objects, and they started to try and classify them. You know, this one is less than one kilometre in size, so that's less to worry about, but I think anything that's over 500 metres is on a special list, because anything that, I forget the exact cut-off sizes, but anything that's over 500 metres in diameter, or whatever the figure is, it might be smaller than that, uh, has the potential to hit the ground. So, you know, you're not so worried about the little rocks that are maybe only like 10 metres across because they're going to burn up in the atmosphere, you know, and they're not going to do any damage on the ground. But anything that's over, whatever it is, 50 metres or 100 metres, you want to be trying to categorise those objects, know exactly where they are, and know when they're going to hit. Yeah. 
Even that one that was in Russia, I was going to go ahead. No, I was going to say as well, um, a lot of, from what I was um, reading before, it says a a lot of um, comets which are actually directly in our atmosphere, uh, sorry, in our atmosphere, in our... um, Solar system? Our solar system, yeah. Get actually hit by Jupiter, get caught in Jupiter's um, right. gravitational pull, and they get attacked. Um, sorry, not attacked, but like get drawn into, into that. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and I've also heard this is a b- bit more of a different um, something else. Um, was if there is a like a larger uh, um, comet heading to Earth, I heard that they could actually change the directory of it by getting it into. Um, it's gonna sound out there, but <laughs> they could actually get spaceships like. Into um sorry, grab it by its own gravitational pull and direct it to away from the Earth. I don't know if that's even possible. Well, there are. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. In in some ways, <clears throat> my own take is really that the black world. If they, in other words, what I've said on other interviews is that if there was a comet or an asteroid heading towards the Earth and they knew it was going to hit, the black world people in the black world know about it way before we ever did, and the people that run the planet if it was to their advantage to let one or more parts of this comet smash into the earth they would let that happen and if if they wanted to deflect it they would be able to deflect it that's the way I look at things now because based on what I've learned about 9-11 but going back into the white world Years ago, I saw a documentary where there was worry. I think it was one of these objects, such as we're discussing, had been discovered in about, oh, I think it was probably 1998, sometime like then, or mid 90s. They discovered one of these objects, and so it had come into the scientific forums that, you know, there's a comet coming towards the Earth, what are we going to do? So the questions such as you raised there were, were raised then. And the American, one American group said, oh, what we'll get, we know we'll get some nuclear warheads. And we'll set the orbit up so that they explode and they deflect the asteroid with a nuclear detonation. Right. That was one of the projects that was was you know, researched. Money was spent on that research, I believe. I forget the name of the project. I'm sure you could find it if you went and looked. I haven't looked yeah, recently. I've heard that one before. And then, of course, the critics of that, the critics of that said, "Oh no, you can't do that because if you set off a nuclear bomb, it'll blow the thing to bits." And then you'll have all these chunks flying around. And where are they going to go? You don't know where they're going to go. Yeah. You know, mm. at least if it's you've got one chunk coming towards you, you know exactly where it's going. But if you try and blow it apart, you could get thousands of chunks coming off and all over the place. You don't know what's going on. So that was a very simple and obvious criticism of that mm-hmm. idea, which you know I agree with. But then there was this other guy. What he said was, and this is a white world project, that if you had enough notice, like maybe a year two years so you saw this object come in so this is why you need good detection equipment like these guys who detected Comet Iceland you could use a version of that for example see these objects when they're way out there uh, coming in and you have six months or a year or two years or as much notice as you can basically and then you would fly out a little um, object with um, some type of device which would focus solar energy uh, so you'd have a quite a large type of mirror which you'd put into a stable orbit around this comet or asteroid or somehow attach it to it or somehow make it stay in the same relationship with this object while it's travelling. Mm. And if you were able to use solar energy to heat one side of it, that would produce vapour from the surface. Whoa. Right, and that, over, and that vapour would produce a very small amount of thrust. Just a, just a tiny amount, you know. Mm. And then when that tiny amount of thrust is acting for six months or a year... 
it will actually change the orbit of that object enough so that it misses the Earth. So you don't need to have these nuclear warheads to yeah. do that. All you need to do is change the trajectory by literally 1% and then... Exactly, or half a percent or whatever it is. You know, And that all can all be calculated by... You know, if you work this out, you can calculate the size of the mirror you'd need, how much energy would go onto the rock. You might have difficulty calculating how much vapour would be produced because you wouldn't necessarily know what the object was made of and what its melting point was. But if you knew that as well, you know, you could calculate the volume of gas given off. That would generate this this amount of pounds or you know kilograms of thrust per day or per hour or whatever it was. And therefore, you could recalculate the orbit, etc., so, and I think what what was on the flip side, you see, this brings me to another point now, actually, about this whole area that we're talking about, because I've already mentioned several times that mainstream science is covering up a lot of this stuff, oh, yeah, right? And when people like yourselves and like me get wind of this, they sometimes want to discard the whole of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they become distrustful of it who can blame them all these universities you know that have done all these studies about space exploration whatever it is drugs pharmaceuticals that give wrong answers and cover stuff up why should you trust them anymore why should you trust them so why should you trust the scientific establishment's view of planet x Mm -hmm. if the scientific establishment is telling you that planet x has left the solar system or can't be seen why should you trust them so in other words, you then have a bit of a gap, you have a void, and people discard the whole of science, including basic stuff that has nothing to do with anything that's covered up. Basic stuff that you can verify with your own eyes. Like I've, I've told you, you can get a telescope. If you get the right sort of equipment, you can look at occultations. You can look in the right place for yeah. large planets. You can do it yourself, you know. Hmm. You can calculate things. If you don't know how to calculate orbital positions, learn how to do it. You know, get buy a science book, study mathematics, study physics. If you don't understand it, ask somebody. Don't just don't just accept somebody else's. In other words, don't replace the cover-up of the scientific establishment with a Planet X believer. You know, belief system because yeah, yeah. they've told you they they think Planet X is on its way. Don't throw throw away the whole of science and analytical thought and replace it completely with a belief system. Mm-hmm. Which is what is happening a lot now, actually, and I've you know been on the receiving end of that, you know. So be very, very wary that you don't, using the simple expression, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. I think that's probably yeah. the, uh, maybe a good place to wrap up as well. I don't know how long that camera's got to. Uh, we'll keep that. keep that going. But I think that's a, that's a powerful place to wrap it up there as well. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time Thanks as well. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Powerhouse. Peace and love. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. That was a great conversation. We really enjoyed our time and want to say again thank you for for Andrew for actually inviting us to his home in Derby in the UK. It really meant a lot to us. And we have some big things coming up with this podcast. And we're going to continue to keep bringing you the most amazing conversations on the planet. And we really mean that. And also as well, all these conversations are available on video form now on the Ascend podcast YouTube page. And also want to say, please consider supporting the podcast for our Patreon page. We really do want to create something that is 100% funded by the people and not only create a podcast, but a movement. 
And with your help, throw a Patreon page and we can do that. So please consider becoming a Patreon and also check out Andrew Johnson's book that we talked about in this podcast, The Secrets Within the Solar System, which is actually available for free at his website. And check out all of his other incredible research and topics that he dives into because he dives into so much more. And in the future, we're definitely going to have a future conversations with him and dive into many more of these topics and research that he, is, that he has done. So anyway, we love you all and we'll catch you next week where we have another powerful podcast. Peace.